we could be at the precipice of what would be the most catastrophic thing that could happen in the Middle East right now. And this is in a context where there is an ongoing mass murder supported by the United States in Yemen, as well as an ongoing multi-party supported mass murder in Syria that implicates every single world power. It is absolutely at the bare minimum a litmus test for Democratic candidates to campaign on restoring the Iran deal. And any sort of superficial fear-mongering about this government needs to be rejected outright. It doesn't mean, as with all the other places that we talked about, that we negate the reality of that government, that we deny that, as an example, just recently, a prominent woman's uh, rights attorney was just sentenced to a draconian and vicious prison sentence in Iran for speaking out uh, on, on, on equality. This is all true, but it's also true that Iran is run by rational deal makers who followed their end of the deal. What is the United States run by? Who is Israel run by? Who is Saudi Arabia run by right now? Those answers are very disturbing and they re reveal the sort of core dangers that are posed in the Middle East today. And they don't, regardless of what we think of Tehran. And I think we should think a lot of very bad things about the, about Islam the Islamic Republic. Republic. But, but that, that is not where the core threat emanates from in any realistic view of the world whatsoever. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. Um, Forrest Miller, I think, is uh, going to have to take uh, the, the week off, or at least the day off, but uh, he will, I'm certain, be back. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I am going to be joined in a few minutes uh, by the one and only Crystal Ball uh, to, uh, to break down the first couple weeks of the Biden administration and uh, basically do... Uh, the domestic policy version of what we did last week with the panel with Daniel Bessner, Katie Halper, and Rania Kalik, uh, where we did a deep dive on both Biden's foreign policy record and you know what we can tell about what he's going to do now. Uh, but the clip that you just heard uh, or watched, if you're watching this live on YouTube, uh, was, uh, of course, uh, the, the late, great uh, Michael Brooks, uh, from about a year ago when he was talking about the Trump administration's warmongering about Iran. And the reason that uh, that I just played that for you now is because uh, there have just been headlines that I've just seen uh, in um, that I've just seen on Twitter, at least uh, that uh, Biden's Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, uh, has been fear-mongering about Iran being weeks away from having its own nuke. Uh, and granted, I'm mostly seeing that right now reported in the Israeli media, which you know, which which has their own incentive to exaggerate everything uh, that uh, you know, everything that the U.S. says that sort of is helpful to them in uh, scaremongering about the Iranian menace. Um, point shouldn't be exaggerated too much there were actually people in the israeli defense establishment who understood that the iran deal was was probably better than even for them than uh having an all-out war uh but uh it even the people say that this is an exaggeration of blinken's comments seem to be saying that well what he said is that there may be months away from being a few weeks away from a nuke uh whatever it may be 
uh, it certainly seems to be the case uh, that uh, that Blinken was engaged in some fairly disturbing uh, fear mongering on the subject and stuff that's that's very worrying and and that goes right to the heart of what Michael was saying um, back you know in that uh, in that earlier segment you know from from a year ago or maybe in 2019 uh, when he's uh, he's talking about Iran. He's saying very nuanced, very smart, very Michaelish things about Iran, uh, that obviously this is not a government that, you know, the um, secular socialist left, you know, has anything in common with or should make excuses for. But uh, if you think that Iran is the great danger in the Middle East, uh, you have you have left reality behind. Uh, that, you know, they... They lived up to uh, to their end of the nuclear deal, uh, and uh, and Trump, of course, ripped it up and then made and then uh, uh, engaged in all sorts of extra aggression towards Iran, assassinating Soleimani, um, etc., and uh, brought us very close to to the brink. It's why I think I was talking about this with Ronnie last week. There's something particularly absurd about giving Trump credit for uh, not having started any new wars. It's a little bit like saying that somebody who has gone to the edge of a, a dry forest and launched a bunch of fireworks into the middle of, uh, of the forest floor. Uh, but well, at least he didn't start any new forest fires. Yeah, okay, maybe none of the uh, small fires the fireworks started uh, escalated into a full-blown forest fire, but you don't get that many points for that. And very similar things apply uh, to... Um, to Trump and Iran or Trump and North Korea before he had his big mood swing on that. But the thing is, and again, what I'm going to do with Crystal later is going to be very solidly focused on domestic policy. Uh, it's so uh, I, I wanted to get this in, you know, at, at the, uh, at the beginning uh, that what Michael was saying at the end of that clip about the greatest danger being the, you know, 800-pound uh, gorilla that is American empire tromping around the Middle East, uh, the, that that is the player that you need to worry the most about is still very much true. Uh, you know, that we shouldn't buy into the myth of Trump as some sort of right-wing isolationist. He was no such thing. Uh, but Blinken's comments today are a really disturbing reminder that the Biden administration is not going to be anything you can count on to uh, to be better uh, in that regard, or maybe better, you know, maybe less likely uh, to you know to start a new war at a whim, uh, but uh, but certainly not fundamentally different. That's the distinction, uh, and certainly the danger of a new American war against Iran has not gone anywhere. Obviously, you know this these claims, you know, weeks away, months away. I mean, you could find, I'm, I'm pretty sure Bibi Netanyahu was making claims like this in 2005 and has uh, has never stopped. Uh, so obviously that doesn't, sh that shouldn't be taken seriously as anything except for an indication of where what Derek Davidson calls the blob, you know, the, the foreign policy elite, where their heads are at, and in particular where decision makers in the Biden administration's heads are at. That is, uh, it's what it's potentially uh, an indication of. So 
I wanted to uh, I wanted to start there. There are uh, there are several other things we, I want to get to before uh, Crystal comes on uh, at eight. Uh, so uh, one of them is that as I have done uh, the uh, the last uh, couple weeks, I want to I want to just share the most recent comic that our uh, very talented graphic designer J. Andrew World has done to promote the Give Them an Argument Patreon. Uh, so it's it's been a series of uh, of pulp fiction uh, themed uh, themed comics. So uh, let me just uh, find that. Uh, so uh, in this, you see uh, John Travolta and Uma Thurman at the diner in Pulp Fiction. Travolta says that's a pretty fucking good milkshake. I don't know if it's worth five dollars, but it's pretty fucking good. Uh, Thurman says, uh, what would you spend $5 on? Travolta says, that's easy. Give them an argument with Ben Burgess. The show uh, is the shit. But uh, for uh, $5 gets you an extra in-depth interview uh, every week, access to uh, Sopranos episodes early. Thurman asks, what's the Sopranos? <laughs> and uh, to which Travolta responds, fuck if I know. This is 1994. I guess if you've never seen uh, Pulp Fiction, uh, that that would be that would seem like a very weird and random uh, random comic, but uh, since I watched that movie many times, uh, I love that. Uh, speaking of movies, uh, the uh, the the Wednesday um, you know the Wednesday movie live stream. Uh, so we've been doing these movie review live streams every week. Uh, the one this Wednesday, uh, because of course of the GameStop, you know the uh, GameStop. Uh, drama that's been going on in the last week. Uh, so in honor of that, the movie that we're going to watch this uh, this week and we're going to comment on, break down in that live stream on Wednesday is uh, going to be The Wolf of Wall Street. So uh, that stream is uh, going to be uh, with uh, our good friend Daniel Bessner, uh, you know, with, with Forrest, if he's back with us by then, uh, with, I'm sure he will be, uh, with uh, Jacobin deputy editor, uh, Micah Utrecht, uh, and also with philosophy professor Ryan Lake. Uh, speaking uh, of uh, Professor Lake, uh, last night I uh, did ended up doing an epic five hour live stream uh, because on Sunday nights we have been doing these uh, uh, these lives, these uh, debate breakdown live streams. So this is actually the 10th one uh, that we've done been trying to alternate between more directly political ones. Like we watched the uh, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley, uh, you know, debate, for example, and more uh, philosophical ones. We watched Chomsky Foucault. Uh, we watched one with various uh, IDW morons about the, uh, about uh, free will and determinism and related subjects. That was a more philosophical one. Uh, we've, we've watched a couple of debates about the, uh, <laughs> we've uh, watched uh, a couple debates uh, about the Iraq War. Uh, very relevant uh, that uh, that that Iran clip earlier, uh, and we uh, and on the more philosophical side, since a bunch of the debates that we've watched have been Christopher Hitchens' debate it's, uh, last night with uh, Ryan Lake and another philosophy professor, uh, Mark Warren, we watched Hitchens' uh, 2009 debate on the existence of God with William Lane Craig. Uh, I'm an atheist, but I think Craig definitely won the debate. Uh, and, uh, and the one uh, next week uh, with uh, frequent guest Matt McManus, uh, we are going to watch 
uh, the debate between uh, Terry Eagleton and uh, and Roger Scruton. So again, back to a little bit more directly political, although uh, those are both obviously um, theorists and not just uh, and not just political commentators. Uh, in any case, uh, on uh, Thursday, uh, we are the uh, episode as referenced in that comic. Uh, they, uh, they give them an argument. Uh, Patreon uh, is um, for $5 a month, so the cost of a milkshake at that 50s Nostalgia Diner in, uh, in Pulp Fiction. Uh, you, uh, you get... Uh, extra episodes uh every single week uh so uh, so those always uh, those always drop on thursdays uh for patrons in both you you know unlisted youtube and in uh, podcast form on the patreon uh and the one this week is uh a discussion uh with my zero books editor doug lane about uh tech censorship and free speech uh this channel uh and the zero books channel have both had pretty recent experience uh, with that, uh, with that topic, uh, so the stream that we did on January sixth, uh, with um, several of those characters that I just mentioned and a couple others. So that was with um, Ryan Lake, Forrest, uh, and uh, Daniel. Uh, no, Daniel wasn't on that one. Gene Bajalan, uh, and also uh, Derek Varn, uh, also from from Zero Books, and that was taken down. Uh, and for really absurd reasons that YouTube said that we that uh, it violated their policy against suggesting that widespread fraud had uh, changed the outcome of the election, which of course nobody on the stream came close to suggesting. In fact, it was obviously you know given all those people that I mentioned, none of them are exactly Trump supporters. Uh, so uh, it was so far from that that there was a big chunk of it that was devoted to the question of whether the uh, the MAGA people who stormed the Capitol were technically fascists or not. Uh, but it was it was taken down for spreading Trumpist conspiracy theories. I can only assume that the algorithm uh, just um, you know was tripped up by too many keywords being used. Uh, and that and you know we filed an appeal that night, but you know it still hasn't been put back up yet. Uh, the Zero Books channel has had uh, very similar experiences, so uh, we are going to uh, uh, very very soon uh, we. Uh, well, after the uh, after the crystal interview, uh, we are going uh, to have uh, to roll a few minutes from my conversation with with Doug. Just a little uh, a little preview of that, uh, and then there will be a uh, there will be a more extensive preview of a different part of it that comes out both on the YouTube channel and on the podcast feed on Thursday, and then of course patrons get the whole thing on Thursday. Uh, Next Monday, uh, we are going to have uh, Jason Miles from uh, the This Is Revolution podcast, and there is also uh, going to uh, be a debate between me and uh, Libertarian and former Libertarian Party, uh, former candidate for the Libertarian Party presidential nomination, uh, uh, Adam uh, Adam Kokish. I, th I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, Adam Kokish. So, um, so anyway, so uh, the next Monday debate between me and Adam Kokish, and uh, and then a chat with uh, Jason Miles uh, from uh, from This Is Revolution, uh, and then the next Thursday could be talking to Sam Adler Adler Bell uh, from uh, the Know Your Enemy podcast. 
uh, and we are going to uh, be talking about a uh, an article uh, that uh, that Sam wrote about uh, Dr. Fauci and uh, uh, and this sort of liberal technocratic cult of him, and and why that might not be as helpful as uh, as some people uh, some people think uh, that uh, that it is. So all good stuff uh, coming up. Uh, meanwhile, I think Crystal is uh, is going to be on in uh, just a moment, but uh, we are going to take a quick break before that happens. All right, let's see. Let's do, nope, we do not have the intermission music. <laughs> it's not where it looked like it was. Uh, so let me just uh, let me just play uh, play this video, and we are going to uh, be right back in just a moment. doing this forest list and uh and crystal uh does not seem to uh to be ready quite yet so uh so give me a moment uh there might be uh, there might be some more technical snags uh but while uh while we are waiting for uh for her i uh want to watch uh a video that is related to the main topic but is a little bit at uh, 90 degrees from it so this is a uh, this is a video from the Intercept to kind of warm us up on the Biden stuff. Uh, so this uh, is called Joe Biden faces uh, questions over claims of civil rights activism. When I marched in the civil rights movement, I did not march with a twelve point program. I marched with tens of thousands of others to change attitudes. When I was 17 years old, like many of you, I participated in sit-ins to desegregate the restaurants and movie houses of Wilmington, Delaware. I came out of the civil rights movement. I was one of those guys that sat in and marched and all that stuff. During the 60s, 
I was, in fact, very concerned about the civil rights movement. I was not an activist. I worked in an all-black swimming pool in the east side of Wilmington, Delaware. I was involved. I was involved in what, what they were thinking, what they were feeling. I was involved, but I was not out marching. I was not down in Selma. I was not anywhere else. I was a suburbanite kid who got a dose of exposure to what was happening to black Americans when I'm in my own city. You know, when I was a teenager in Delaware, for real, I got involved in the civil rights movement. We have the eighth largest black population in America. Most people don't know that. And uh, I'd go to eight o'clock mass, and I'd go to Reverend Herring's church where we'd meet in order to organize and figure where we were gonna go, whether we're gonna desegregate the Rialto movie theater or what we were gonna do. I got my education, for real in the black church and that's not hyperbole it's a fact but i got my education reverend doc in the black church not a joke because when we used to get organized on sundays to go out and segregate movie theaters and things like that we do it through the black church i was no big shakes reverend in the civil rights movement. i was just a kid i got involved in desegregated movie theaters and helping, you may remember Reverend Moyer in Delaware and Herman Holloway organized voter registration drives, coming out of black churches on Sunday, figuring how we were gonna move. In October, uh, I was invited to uh, the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis to receive the Freedom Award. A thing when I sat in black churches on the east side of Wilmington getting ready to, and by the way, next to Jewish, two Jewish rabbis, uh, getting ready to go out and desegregate movie theaters in Delaware. Um, I never, ever thought in my life I would be worthy of, and I'm still not sure I'm worthy of it. tied up in a filibuster. That's right. Uh, Senator Noah Weicker is filibustering against a couple of anti-busing amendments. It used to be that the filibuster was a tool of Southern conservatives to be used uh, to halt desegregation. It is turned around now to become a tool to try to continue desegregation, if one can put it that way. Do you support that filibuster, even though it's holding up some legislation that you'd like to see on the floor? It's strange. Uh, I support the filibuster that's going on for a while. The reason I say for a while is I happen to be one of those so-called uh, people are labeled as a liberal on civil rights, but oppose busing, and, but oppose busing. And I support the effort to curtail uh, the uh, ability of courts to bus. And the strange thing is that had the filibuster been broken yesterday, it would have stripped seen amendment from this bill. So there was a strange convergence of, of uh, um, uh, opinion. Liberals, uh, pro-bussers and anti-bussers voted against ending the filibuster because one of the elements of the anti-bussing provision would have been stripped away because what happens when, as you know better than uh, most, uh, when a filibuster is, uh, is broken and cloture is invoked, non-germane amendments no longer can be discussed. 
and a busing amendment is non-germane to this particular bill. So I guess the, the least confusing way to say it is, uh, I don't like filibusters. I have not been supportive of filibusters in my nine years of the Senate, used by either liberals or conservatives. And on the issue that the argument is about, and that is whether or not busing serves a, uh, is A, required constitutionally, and B, is, has a utilitarian value for desegregation. I come down on the side A, it is not constitutionally required, and B, it is not a useful tool. But, but if you would strip the courts of that, that power to order busing, what would stop some other senators then from stripping the power of the courts uh, in abortion? Uh, I think stop some other senators then. Important, if I, if I could suggest, uh, on to point out that A, uh, this proposal does not strip the court of the power to order busing, or even more importantly, it does not strip the court of the power to impose a remedy where they found a constitutional violation. No one is suggesting that. Where the court has said that, at least I'm not suggesting that, where the court has concluded that a school court has said that, at least I'm not suggesting that, where the court has concluded that a school district, a state, or a, a particular area has intentionally attempted to and must declare that to be unconstitutional and thereby move from there to impose a remedy to correct the situation. What I have argued as one who grew up in the civil rights movement and ran for office as a public defender and a member of an active participant in civil rights cases, in civil rights cases, I have argued that the least effective remedy to be imposed is the busing remedy. You have a remedy of altering school district lines. You have the remedy of ordering construction of new schools. You have the remedy of change the particular provision within the law that prevented the, the, the movement of black students into a white school area. But what has happened is the courts, as a consequence of 25 years of recalcitrance, primarily in the part of the South, uh, and very inventive methods on the part of the South to get around the, uh, the uh, unitary school requirement, that is continuing set up, setting up dual school systems, in, if you look at the cases, in my opinion, in frustration, the court evolved a, a re remedy that said, look, if 50% of this city of, uh, of Dunlop, Dunlop uh, South Carolina is black, and you have two schools in Dunlop, all white and one is all black, something's rotten in Dunlop. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to just look all white and one is all black, something's rotten in Dunlop. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to just look at that and put the burden on you. If 50% of the this, this city is black, then 50% of the sky, that rationale to the north, where you had integrated facilities by and large, but segregated living areas as a consequence of migratory patterns and developments in the areas, but segregated living areas as a consequence of migratory patterns and developments in the area. That it just like when Irish moved, they went into Irish ghettos and Jews into Jewish ghettos, et cetera. In the South, after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, the slaves didn't move off the plantation. Excuse me, can I just interrupt you there? You write parallel, you draw parallels between Jews moving into Jewish ghettos, Italians into Italian ghettos, and blacks into black ghettos. Isn't Jewish ghettos, Italians into Italian ghettos, and blacks into black ghettos? Isn't there a difference? Wasn't, it, wasn't there among earlier ethnic groups 
a certain amount of, if you call it, if you will, self-segregation, that they like to live together, and, yes. out, and leaving blacks yes. in ghettos? I, I don't Do mean they to, choose the ghettos? I, 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 I don't mean to overstate that. All, I was talking about the early patterns of, of migration to the north um, in, the, uh, in, in the early 20s and 30s. And matter of fact, we went even further. Uh, Dan, as you know, what happened was um, there were many laws further. Uh, Dan, as you know, what happened was um, there were many laws in many northern states that said black folks must live here. They can't live anywhere else. But the point I was trying to make is when you're trying to remedy the situation the, in an area where you had black, white, black, white living on the same block, it made a great deal of sense. But where you ended up with disparate neighborhoods, long distances apart, but were segregated, and you tried to integrate the facilities, it created a number of mechanical problems Senator, of significance. Senator, before we finish the segment, I'm going to have to find out uh, not whether or not you think that busing is the, the best way right. to achieve desegregation, but whether given that the courts do use busing as a tool, you support these two amendments by Senator Helms and Senator Johnston. Do you support those amendments which would have the effect of cutting off funds right. and otherwise preventing the Justice Department from even dealing in this tool? Well, it doesn't prevent them from dealing in it, but what it, I do, I think the Johnson Amendment's a, not, not a very good amendment, not for constitutional reasons, but for practical reasons. When you get into deciding minutes and distances, uh, it, it doesn't work. And one of my problems with the Johnston Amendment, it will be only a Band-Aid. It will, it will make it appear as though we've dealt with a busing issue, but we really will not have dealt with the busing You support the Helms issue. Amendment? No, I don't think the Helms Amendment is a, it, it is a particularly useful one, but I think it's important that, and I'm not sure it would be held constitutional, to tell you the truth, but I do think that uh, it's important that the entire United States Senate and Congress go on record to telling the courts that, that you've got to find other remedies. All right. That was uh, the President of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, earlier in his career, uh, talking about uh, subjects that he's notoriously, uh, you know, very good on. <laughs> Champion of Black America, Joe Biden, reliving a little history there. I was saying to you, anytime he starts talking about race, even to the present day, I just start getting extremely no nervous because it oftentimes goes off the rails, as we saw with the, like, you ain't black comments <laughs> during the campaign. Memory in particular. Yeah, I have to say, Biden. Um, Biden, it does have in common with the previous president that, like, he has so many weird utterances that, like, whenever you hear one that you haven't heard for a while, it's like, oh yeah, that was like three years ago, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> Avi, I don't want to overplay like the similarities, and so people go, oh, she's saying Biden and Trump are the same. They're not the same, obviously. But there are some like sort of central characteristics of their personalities that are a little bit similar. Like, um, you know, I think about it most often with foreign policy where neither one of them has any sort of like really fully formed ideology. It's all very relationship based. And they both, and this is relevant to today's news actually, I think they both have this 
unearned confidence in their own ability to like strike a deal just through the <laughs> sheer force of their charisma and personality, which is that may be actually the ultimate testament to white male privilege right there. Yes, <laughs> they're going to come to the day. They're going to work with me. I'm going to get a great deal with them. I know these guys is going to be fine. Which of course, something we saw very much with Donald Trump as well. So there you yeah, go. I right. thought. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Uh, so I'm of course joined uh, by Crystal Ball, who is the co-host of The Rising, and since the last time she was on this show, is now the uh, co-host of something else. Uh, do you uh, do you want to uh, plug the new show? Yeah, of course I want to plug the new show. Um, Crystal, Kyle, and Friends, new podcast with Kyle Kalinsky, um, which is really fun. We're doing it once a week. And it's an opportunity for us to have these kind of longer conversations with people that we're just both find really interesting. And uh, the place to find that, I mean, the audio version of it, you can find on any of the normal podcast places, Apple, Spotify, wherever else people get podcasts. And then if you want to get the video, you subscribe over at Substack. And there's also a newsletter that goes out. So if you don't, it's five bucks a month to get the video. But if you don't want to pay that, you can still sign up over at Substack. And there's a newsletter that comes out that sort of, you know, tells you who's coming up and some of our early thoughts on the week and there's a little ride around from the video and all that good stuff. But yeah, it's really fun to do. I'm enjoying it a lot. Nice. Yeah, that's great. So uh, we, we, we got a little, you know, get a little taste of, uh, of part of Biden's history on some of this stuff. You know, we, we kind of did a, a deep dive, you know, last week on, uh, on some of the foreign policy stuff, we got to see, you know, Biden uh, calling for the invasion of Iraq and then lying about it uh, over and over and over again, uh, you know, when it, uh, when it came up, uh, you know, we, we saw Biden, you know, fear my, like whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, but I want to talk a little bit more now about the uh, domestic stuff. Uh, so, I think that that lead in with, with Biden's history of race, you know, might be useful because if you watched the inaugural, you know, his inaugural address, which was, you know, very weird in a lot of ways, like he said that the pursuit of bipartisan unity was going to be as important to him as the end of slavery was to Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> actual thing he said in the inaugural. Uh, but, uh, but, he also talked about, you know, systemic racism. He used this phrase, you know, a couple times, you know, that he wants to do something about systemic racism. Uh, and so you'd think that that meant that whatever he did about that would have been systemic. Uh, right. But so far, as far as I can tell, you know, what he's done with executive orders has mostly, you know, been along the lines of, you know, taking the 1776 report off a government website, which is nice, but, you know, purely symbolic, um, having people form a new interagency thing to like refine the collection, you know, methods for how to measure diversity and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's, it's all kind of been like that. Uh, and what are the things that Biden actually could be doing right now? Like, like, I mean, maybe, you know, just starting with the race and criminal justice stuff, like, like, what could he be doing right now if he wanted to? Well, I mean, if we want to start with criminal justice, um, you know, he did an executive order with a lot of fanfare about ending private prison contracts, federal level. That's great. That's great. Yeah. That's progress. Glad to see it. 
But with every single one of these executive orders, and I really then I have really done my homework on these because I don't want to be a hater. I really want to give him credit when he deserves credit, like good private prisons at the federal level. That's great. But I really literally feel like every time I dig into one of these things, I end up coming away disappointed because I was set to be like, this is great. This is progress. This is important. And then you dig in and you find out, well, there's only three contracts <laughs> to start with. And it doesn't include immigration detention, which is a more sizable part of a population. So even this, you're like, okay, you know, good. It's better than it was, but it's also not all that it could be. Um, we just had over the summer, obviously, the largest protest movement in the nation's history. And at the federal level, we've seen literally nothing uh, in response to that. I think at the local level, activists have been able to secure quite a number of wins. Actually, I don't want to invisibilize that at all. But at the federal level, we've gotten, you know, Pelosi and co kneeling in kente cloth. And we had the really embarrassing spectacle of going into the um, critical Senate races in Georgia, it being reported that everyone's going, hey, let's not talk about, let's not even say the word police, right? Let's not even go there whatsoever. So we're not even going to talk about considering to do anything on that front. But you know, it's also, um, and this is not, you know, I'm just, I'm not, pick, I'm not uh, criticizing your framing of this, but it also really annoys me when people equate racial justice mm. just with criminal justice, right? If Biden was serious about racial equity and closing the racial wealth gap, then we would have Medicare for all. If he yeah. was serious, then we would cancel student debt right if he was serious then we would not be like begging for fourteen hundred dollars when you promise two thousand dollars immediately now it's like fourteen hundred dollars maybe when we get to it and we're going to keep negotiating it down no you would be doing two thousand dollars a month every month at least for the duration of the pandemic as they've done in places like canada and other places and which is not some radical left-wing idea. It's an idea that's supported by an overwhelming majority of the American people. So if you were actually serious about these issues, those are the sort of steps that you would take, all of which, this is not fantasy land, 100% of the things that I just mentioned are 100% within Biden's control, and yet it's there's no prayer of, of any of that actually happening. So I think that tells you the seriousness with which he and the Democratic Party establishment in general take the issue. Yeah, so I, I think it, it's right to, to say that all of the, like if you care about you know equalizing the life outcomes of Americans from different racial backgrounds, uh, then, and if, if that's not what he means by, by what he talks about systemic racism, then I literally don't know what it means. Um, but if if that's what you care about, then yes, absolutely, all of those issues would be part of it. But even in the narrower way, it was often, you know, construed that you know that when there was that you know kneeling in kente cloth, you know, that was, uh, you know, that that was about you know policing and you know and all of that. That was that was the context that that happened in, and it, it's it is an incredibly restrictive way to to talk about that. I think that's totally right. Uh, but even just. You know, sticking with that, you know, before we get to, you know, the the healthcare and, you know, and, and uh, stimulus checks and all of those other things, uh, this this seems like, you know, there is a whole lot more that the president could unilaterally do on this uh, besides just canceling three private prison contracts. <laughs> you think? I mean, 
hey, how about you deschedule marijuana? How about we start there? How about you deschedule some other things while you're at it? I mean, if there's one thing that is central to the system of mass incarceration, which Joe Biden himself helped <laughs> integrally to construct right. and certainly knows a thing about, it is the war on drugs. So if you actually want to make changes, if you're actually serious about these things and not doing the Kente cloth equivalent, that's where you start, right? That's where you go to. And um, we haven't heard anything about that so far, Ben. Yeah, right. And and also besides the scheduling marijuana, I mean, like he, he could, I mean, public federal prisons, uh, you know, he could release anybody he wanted, you know, to uh, to release, you know, he has that power yeah. for pardon. And so, you know, there, there could be mass releases of nonviolent offenders, you know, tomorrow, uh, if he wanted to. Although, why would, I mean, they, I think there's a larger context here, which is why would you think uh, that he wanted to, given that, you know, given that throughout his entire history, uh, pretty much leading up to becoming president, uh, he, you know, certainly the entire time he was in the Senate, you know, he was one of the, like, biggest war on drugs hawks uh, in the Senate. You know, he was he was pushing for ever more draconian, uh, you know, laws about all of that stuff. And I know that the more sympathetic interpretation of Biden you get, and I mean, it actually says something about how bad the record is that this is the more sympathetic interpretation. Mm -hmm. it, well, he's just an opportunist. He doesn't really believe any of that. You know, that's mm. like, so he could go either way. It doesn't really matter. You know, he'll just go whichever way. <laughs> that's, the best, that's the best possible case. I actually, I mean, I kind of buy the case, to be honest with you. Like, I honestly think he's always tried to find whatever the center of political gravity was in Washington. And the center of political gravity in Washington is always a terrible place to be, right? I mean, that's where wars are started, bad trade deals are passed, and, you know, um, drug wars are started and mass incarceration is increased in these like terrible, wrongheaded, tough on crime crap. That's all in the, the center of political gravity. And that's where he's always tried to sort of situate himself. I mean, going back to some of what we were saying at the beginning about him and Trump and their similarities. Like, I do think very central to his self-conception is this idea that I work across the aisle. You know, I think that's really core to the extent that he has an ideology. I think that's the thing that you just can't break him of, which is a disaster because we see the results playing out right now, even after eight years of seeing that the Republicans have no intent of working with you on in good faith on anything that in fact, they've set out to destroy you and your presidency and undermine any potential progress that could inure to your benefit. There's still all this at least, um, at least on the surface level symbolic, we're going to meet with them, we're going to negotiate with them, we're taking their plan seriously on relief, rather than just a really clear headed, here's what we need, here's what we're going to do. And we're going to put the screws to anyone in our own party who isn't going to go along with us. So, um, and this is the other thing that, you know, mm. I, I really think about like this, this right wing group that came up of Republicans that came up with their alternative relief, relief plan. I use that word very loosely here they immediately get an invite to the White House. Well, Ilhan Omar and a lot of other progressives authored a letter saying that, hey, we need to do more. We need to have $2,000 recurring checks. Um, I haven't seen their invite to the White House yet. 
And I don't actually put that 100% on Biden because the bottom line is the Republicans and the mansions of the world are willing to walk away and not vote for the deal. And even in sending this letter, the progressives said up front, look, this isn't gonna hold back our support. So they're not really giving him a reason for having to meet with them and having to negotiate on the progressive side of the lever of, of the ledger. The only people who are really willing to play hardball here are the right wingers. And so that's kind of where you, how you end up. Now, the more charitable interpretation there, which I do want to grant is like people like Ilhan Omar and AOC and, and Bernie, who I think has played a little bit more hardball at this point than others. Um, they actually care about the result, right? Mm. They actually want people to get relief. And so the fact that they have morals and values is kind of weaponized against them because it's like, oh, well, you can't stand in the way of this deal, right? People need this help. And they're like, God, people really do need this help. And I really don't want to be the one standing in the way of that deal. And I do believe that they come from that like good moral place, but mm. ultimately their, their willingness to just sort of send the strongly worded letter without putting any muscle behind it leads to an inferior result for everyone. Right, and uh, when we when we talk about that result, uh, they, I mean, this is something you you mentioned earlier, but I mean, it's it's, it's really worth like circling and underlining a couple times uh, that the argument that you know during the election they literally like there were literally ads that ran in Georgia with images of two thousand dollar checks in them, and then after the election they did they flipped to saying oh what we really meant. Uh, was was fourteen hundred dollar checks because if you think about it, uh, you always know it's going to be a political winner when you start with if you think about it. <laughs> that's really like having a two thousand dollar check because it adds with the six hundred dollars that you already spent in December, mm. uh, and so it, it's you know it's it's like two thousand dollars. That's some delicious democratic messaging right there, isn't it? If you add the fourteen with the six hundred dollars that you previously may have received, you'll see that it equals up to two thousand dollars. It's like, oh my god, what are you doing right now? And then I have to say, like, I consider myself to be kind of fairly cynical at this point. You know, like I didn't expect much from the Biden administration. I still don't expect much from the Biden administration, and yet when he was so clear in Georgia of like, you will get two thousand dollars immediately. I actually believed it. I really thought. Yeah, like, it seemed like that might might be the one thing they do. That I mean, no, yeah. That, like, yeah, given with the way the Democrats are, they'll probably be like, yeah, you get a two thousand dollar check, then nothing for the next four years, and they'd tell tell you you should be grateful for the two thousand dollars. But you at least thought they're gonna get the two thousand dollars. Yes, yes, and you know what? People are so beaten down, and the last four years have been so terrible, and especially the last year. And God, everyone just like wants to breathe for a minute that if you did a good job with the vaccine and you just gave people the damn $2,000 you promised, I think you'd have a sky high approval rating. I don't think it would last. I think that ultimately like the structural issues that brought us to this place, that brought us Donald Trump, that created skyrocketing inequality, that created all of these, like all of this anxiety and unrest and turmoil that we're witnessing in society, like that's not going anywhere anytime soon. But in the short term, I think if you gave people the checks that you promised and you did a good job with vaccines, you'd be set for the midterms, especially with the way that the Republicans are like doing everything they can possibly to self-implode right now. So I couldn't, I just didn't have the creativity or the nihilism to imagine that they'd be like, wait a second, what we really meant was 1400, number one, and number two, March, April, 
Facebook time and let's talk with the Republicans about maybe it should really be a thousand. Maybe we should means test it more. Like I I genuinely, it, it genuinely blows my mind because even a lot of Wall Streeters and the big corporate donors are like, give people their money because we need them to spend it. And we right. need this economy to like keep going and our stocks to keep going up and all that stuff. And uh, so it's just kind of mind boggling to me that they are doing everything they can to reduce the amount that they can get away with sending to the American people. And I do think that they'll pay a massive political price. I put people were promised $2,000 and you can do lots of other good stuff. And I want to be clear, like they're planning on some other potentially good stuff. We'll see what the details are when they eventually get it together and get this stuff done. But if on the one really clear thing that you promised, you end up kind of weaseling your way out of, um, I don't think that's a good look whatsoever. Yeah. It's it's definitely not. Uh, I, I do want to uh, I do want to switch gears and uh, watch just a little bit more Biden. I promise we won't have to watch any more Biden after this. <laughs> Bill, the consensus in this country, because the real problem is going to be taking on those insurance companies, because they're going to be the ones you're going to have Harry and Louise. Remember those ads of Harry and Louise out there saying this is awful what the Democrats are proposing. And so the second thing is you've got to provide for, I think everyone should essentially be able to be, from age one on, essentially have the same kind of coverage you have in Medicare. It should be just universal across the board. We could afford to do that. It's no secret that I support Medicare for all. I don't. I understand the appeal of Medicare for all, but folks supporting it should be clear that it means getting rid of Obamacare. And I'm not for that. I was sworn into the United States Senate next to a hospital bed. My wife and daughter had been killed in a car crash. Lying in that bed were my two surviving little boys. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like if we didn't have the health care they needed immediately. Forty years later, one of those little boys, my son Bo, was diagnosed with terminal cancer and given only months to live. I can't fathom what would have happened if the insurance companies had said for the last six months of his life, you're on your own. The fact of the matter is, healthcare is personal to me. Obamacare is personal to me. When I see the president try to tear it down and others propose to replace it and start over, that's personal to me too. We got to build on what we did because every American deserves affordable healthcare. I'm Joe Biden and I approve this message. Here, you have 160 million people negotiated their health care plans with their employer, like many of you have. You may or may not like it. If you don't like it, you can move into the public option that I propose in my plan. But if you like it, you shouldn't have, Wall- you shouldn't have Washington dictating to you, you cannot keep the plan you have. So the 160 million people who have busted their neck, walked down picket lines, gave up pay, took hits, in order to get significant health care available, you get to keep it under my plan. You don't have to give it up. It costs $30 trillion. Let's get that straight. $30 trillion over 10 years. Some say it costs $20 trillion. Some say it costs 40 What's the revolution going to do? Disrupt everything in the meantime? Look, Bernie talks about, excuse me, the senator talks about 
his Medicare for all. He still hasn't told you how he's going to ever get it passed. He hasn't told you how, in fact, there's any possibility of that happening. He hadn't told you how much it's going to cost. He hadn't told you how it's going to apply. It doesn't kick in for four years even after it passes. We want a revolution. Let's act now. And Bernie still hasn't answered the question. How much is it going to cost? Who's going to pay for it? He talks about this, this savings. You know, in Vermont, they did pass the Affordable Care Act. Excuse me, they did pass Medicare for All. It doubled the income tax of the state. It put a 14% tax on, on, on income, excuse me, withholding tax, and they got rid of it. Throughout the Democratic primary, you made clear your opposition to single-payer Medicare for All, and you have won the nomination. But in recent months, 20 million Americans have lost their jobs and many have lost their health insurance with it. Democrats overwhelmingly support Medicare for all. And it's especially popular among young people. And even your friend, Barack Obama, said recently that it is a good idea. Democrats aren't just running on good old ideas, they're running on good new ideas, like Medicare for all. So my question is, do you see a future where health insurance is no longer tied to employment? Will America ever have a single-payer system where health care is guaranteed as a human right? Health care guaranteed as a human right, but taking away the right to have a private plan if you want a private plan, I disagree with. It was painful. Yeah, yeah, every every part of that was painful, but uh, he that is what he has been consistently uh, arguing so you you at least at least can't uh, can't fault him for uh, for for not um, you know sticking with it but what he's uh, what he's sticking with here is pretty evil uh, that you know we're that we're keeping a system of private for-profit health insurance uh, in the middle of an unprecedented uh, global pandemic uh, and I mean obviously all the arguments that he's he's making in there are, are uh, that he's made you know in that montage uh are are absurd uh, but what could he be doing right now if he wanted to if the magus tomorrow and he just said and he decided actually no i don't want to uh really preserve the american health insurance system uh you know i i think that you know i think that we can have what they've had in decades for can in canada without it leading to catastrophe uh, what what could he do right now to uh, to give people health care? Uh, I mean, Bernie Sanders was reportedly exploring emergency um, health insurance for the pandemic, universal health care during the pandemic. And, you know, it's very much my and he believes you could do that through budget reconciliation. I think that's probably the case because you can do anything through budget reconciliation that has an impact on the budget. I am quite sure that healthcare has an impact on the budget of the United States government. And it is very much my strong belief that once everyone has universal access to healthcare, regardless of their employment status, they're not going back. Mm -hmm. So that would be one really easy, really straightforward. And then what people would say is, oh yeah, but don't forget, you got Joe Manchin, you got Kirsten Cinema. You know what? Go to their state, make them answer to the people who don't have health care in the middle of a pandemic. Even Joe Manchin, we saw the way that he turned on a dime when he had a tiny bit of pressure placed on him regarding the direct stimulus checks. I mean, West Virginia is one of the poorest states in the entire country. Don't think people there want health insurance. I can promise you, and I've looked at the polling on this, that they 100% do. So 
get use the bully pulpit rather than using it to like shame progressives and you know and get them and like use it to put pressure on conservative democrats right-wing democrats in your own party to get the american people what they deserve and you know what the media may make you a villain, the corporate interest may make you a villain, but the people will be 100% with you. Um, to get in a shameless uh, plug here for Crystal Kyle and friends, we had Thomas Frank on, incredible historian, author, um, one of the big, personally, he's one of the biggest influence in my own political views. And he was talking about, you know, with FDR, it was like 85% of newspapers endorsed against him. <laughs> Every single elite interest despised him, right? Whether it was financial elites, political elites, um, academia, and all of the media elites, all of these newspaper editorial boards, they despised him. And that was precisely part, like a core part of why people loved him so much. But you just see zero, I mean, you really see zero willingness from any Democrat to actually position themselves in that way. But look, I think it I think your question is incredibly important because, you know, it's a hard balance when you're evaluating what's happening in the Biden administration. You see, like, okay, maybe they're gonna do this $1.9 trillion relief bill through reconciliation. We'll see whether they decide to push and do $15 minimum wage, which would be which would be a great improvement by 2025, by the way. Um yeah. And on this, in the same respect, we have to hold in our head what they could be doing. And now that they have, you know, the House, the Senate, and the White House, there is a massive array of structural problems that they could be addressing if they actually cared to. And healthcare is is among those things. Obviously, canceling debt, um, student debt, and medical debt. Those are also, you know, those are readily available to them. So the, the decision not to do those things is an active choice. And I think that's something that's important to always hold in our head and not lower the bar just because we have such low expectations for Joe Biden. We need to understand it. And this is actually consistent with the bar that he has himself set. He says he wants to restore the soul of the nation, right? He wants to build back better. He's hung a gigantic portrait. The center focal point in the Oval Office is a portrait of FDR. So he's setting that standard of like, we need to not just put the little Band-Aid, you know, the smallest possible Band-Aid that we can on what is a gaping wound created by the coronavirus, both health and economic crisis. We need to hold him to the standard of meeting this moment in history when clearly the neoliberal Reaganomics era mm. and that regime has completely broken down here and around the world. We need a new paradigm. And he's held himself down as being up to the task. So far, the best we're getting is like a little bit of a bigger Band-Aid that we're supposed to be like, yay, this is amazing. Yeah. And by, as you were saying, that, I was just thinking, you know, I, I still, you know, I, I think everything you just said is right, but God, that slogan "Build Back Better." You could you could just, yeah, feel like just the room like, for consultation in my brain. Like, <laughs> like, okay, build back. No, but we he, can't just say "Build Back" because that's no, no, "Build Back Better." There we go. There we go. It's fine. Got to, got to get the three. Oh, um, it's better than 
1400 plus 600 if you'll recall we sent you a check before it's better than that which is amazing uh, you know i mean i don't know if, if you if you saw this there was a article in uh the san francisco examiner today there was this mm -hmm. uh, there, was, there was this insane op-ed by uh, someone who was saying that Bernie Sanders uh, wearing like a heavy coat and mittens to the inauguration showed his privilege uh, because it was, I don't know, a historic occasion and he, I, whatever. I, I, I'm not even sure I understand how that argument is supposed to work, but, uh, but that, that, that showed, that showed his privilege, you know, because he, he wasn't, you know, he was willing to, he was willing to wear this, this coat that, you know, he was willing to, not dress up for the occasion and somebody who was less privileged would have felt the need to dress up. I think that's how that, I think that's how that was supposed to go. Uh, but if, if you really talk about privilege, say, why are you upset? $1,500, $2,000. It's basically the same thing as if like $600 more or less was just something that should be completely insignificant to everyone is a pretty amazing testament to privilege. That is well said, my friends. And, you know, I thought uh, David Sorota made a good point on rising, which is like, look, even if you're charitable and say uh, there was some ambiguity about whether it's 2000 or 1400, like even if you grant them that, which I really don't, because as you said, Warnock was sending out, putting up Facebook ads that had a picture of a $2,000 check, not a 1400 and you got your $600 earlier check, a $2,000 check, like that was the common conception. But even if you grant them, that there was some ambiguity, like, what are you doing seizing on that ambiguity to rip people off? Why would you do that? You know, <laughs> like, you're supposed to be the party of the people. Shouldn't you be seizing on that ambiguity to make the checks as large as possible? I would be seizing on that ambiguity to say, you know what, $2,000 this month is so popular. We got to keep this going until we get this pandemic licked right. and we get people to the other side of it. And then we're going to take a look and, and see where we are and what people need to go from there. Why aren't you seeing the ambiguity to go in that direction rather than being like, well, I think we can get away with giving them only 1400. So that's what we're going to do. And, um, you know, I don't want to harp on this issue. I feel like I talk about it a lot, but I just feel like there's so much contained in this one thing. Like this is the crux of why people don't trust politicians. It shows that, it shows also, as you were alluding to, how completely wildly out of touch they are. Not only that you scale it back to 1400, but that you think that immediate means three months from now. Right. Like, have you ever, do you not even have you been in a position? Do you know anyone who has been in a yeah, position they, where they're trying to make rent? Yeah, you think that four that fourteen hundred dollars three months from now and two thousand dollars right now are basically the same thing. For people who are struggling and like, how am I gonna put it together this week and like keep the lights on and not get evicted and all like put food on the table? How do you think that those people can just casually like wait three months for less than what was ultimately anticipated? That's really been the story. It's been one of the stories, at least, of this entire crisis. The total lack of urgency, the total lack of understanding of, of what people are going through right now in this moment, because it has been this K-shaped recovery where the, the impact and the crisis is so concentrated mm 
among, you know, the bottom half and certainly the bottom quarter of Americans in terms of income that, um, you know, these Nancy Pelosi eating her ice cream from her, her beautiful, like $10,000 fridge or whatever, they just don't have any actual connectivity, visceral connectivity with these communities, um, which is, you know, part of why I get excited when I see someone like a Cori Bush coming mm-hmm. into Congress who has, who viscerally understands what that experience is like, has been homeless herself, has known what it's like to not be able to provide the stability and the life for her kids and the, and the pain of that struggle, like bringing that experience with you into Congress. That's why I'm so excited about someone like Nina Turner, who's just like a totally, you know, laser focused champion for working people every single chance that she gets no matter what the obstacle. But the vast majority of these people, they're millionaires. They haven't seen or understood the struggle in a long, long, long time. And that's not saying you have to be like working class to be a good ally. I just think it's really endemic to this system that we've constructed where, you know, the rich are living completely different lives, completely divorced from what the people who are struggling, struggling in this pandemic have actually gone through. And they don't see it. They don't understand it. They feel like, hey, three months from now, it's close enough. Yeah. And on, um, you know, on the healthcare part of all of this, uh, I mean, I think, you know, because what you're what you're talking about earlier is that, you know, thinking about what they actually could be doing you know, is important because, I, well, actually, if, if they'd lost those elections in Georgia, then they'd have the golden excuse, you know, for for years of, you know, the, the Republicans mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. don't have that. Uh, now they've got the excuse of uh, Joe Manchin, uh, but it's it's all. But which I think is is good, you know, because that's that's a that's a much thinner excuse uh, that you know then then we don't control the Senate at all. Uh, but if if that was really the way, like if you had that bill to you know to temporarily provide everybody with you know with with health access to uh, to Medicare as a uh, as an emergency measure, you know, until the end of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it really was just like Joe Manchin and like one or two other people voting, you know, like uh, one or two other Democrats, you know, joining joining Republicans in voting against it. I mean, it's because that's going to be the excuse for not doing it. It is maybe important to like try to like play that out. Like like how would like how would that go if if everybody. You know, and and I and I know that like sometimes I think we can have like wishful thinking about this and think that you know people are going to punish politicians for things much more than they really will. Mm. Uh, but that really does seem like if if voters in West Virginia know that Joe Manchin is literally the only thing standing between them and uh, and having health insurance, I've gotta think that the that like the way that that played out in public opinion in West Virginia the way that played out in the polls you know would have to start looking pretty dire for him really quickly I absolutely think so I mean you and that's that's the answer is you have to make people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema rather than right now the attitude towards them is like oh they're poor, like poor thing that we have to protect them, right? Like there's special flaw. We have to make sure they can continue to win their elections. It's like, no, actually the fact that they're in a precarious place and maybe, you know, if they're up for reelection sometime soon, that's your leverage. That's what you use. You, that's what you wield to get your agenda, especially the 
unbelievably popular parts of your agenda passed. So it's a completely backwards way of thinking. These aren't like special little babies that need to be protected. These are powerful political actors who are making cynical political decisions and you need to force them to make a different cynical political decision. And West Virginia happens to be a state that I know a lot about the politics of. I've spent a lot of time there. Um, I have my, both as a child, my family's from there and working in politics. And, you know, I think people kind of misunderstand the state a lot. It's a very populist state in a lot of ways. I was actually just reviewing the polling for a radar I did on rising specifically around West Virginia. You have 60 some percent that support federal government green job spending just for one, just to like totally obliterate the it's a bunch of coal miners who just are like wedded to fossil fuels <laughs> mindset that a lot of people have when it comes to West Virginia. Also, look, I'm not going to say that there that it's perfect and there's no racism and sexism. I've seen both of those things, you know, endemic in West Virginia. There's no doubt about it. But uh, a large majority said racism and policing is a really significant issue. So even on some of the the social cultural issues, the polling is not reflective of the public perception of the state on a lot of, you know, on, on guns, on abortion, um, mixed views on immigration, but they certainly were in favor of like building the wall, very, very conservative on those issues. And those are the issues that Joe, Joe Manchin has used to pander on. He famously like shot up a copy of the cap and trade bill in a campaign ad. Do you remember that? That was like kind of his claim to fame for a while. Um, (laughs) But if you pull on economic issues, they are actually left of where the nation as a whole is. So on healthcare, for example, they are somewhat left of where the nation as a whole is in terms of universal single payer healthcare. Um, in terms of lifting the minimum wage, they are relatively progressive. A strong majority supports lifting the minimum wage. Um, certainly if you pulled on $2,000 checks, I know it would be wildly popular. If you pull even on something amorphous, like um, should the government be doing more or less? This was from a Fox News poll on election night. A majority of West Virginians say, hey, the government should actually be doing more to help people in this country. So on economics, West Virginians, and you look, they voted overwhelmingly for Bernie Sanders in the primary against Hillary Clinton, by the way, um, and maybe sexism played some role, but that was not the only thing going on there. There is a populist economic strain in the state of West Virginia that could be wielded very effectively against Joe Manchin. And um, this is an area where I think a lot of the national political commentariat and also the uh, national political office holders are kind of, you know, they're completely disconnected that you could have those two things together, people who are really socially conservative, but also have these more left-leaning, what are really, they're really moderate economic positions, but more left-leaning in terms of American political context, economic positions. So you've got a place where Joe Manchin is at odds with his base. That again is political leverage that if you wanted to use, rather than worrying about protecting Joe Manchin, if you worried about protecting the people of his state and the people of this country, that is the way that you would ultimately think about it. Yeah, and by the way, I love that when uh, when Bernie won West Virginia, the exploit, you know, like that idea that it that was like just sexism is mm-hmm. all that is really weird because, as I recall, in two thousand eight, Hillary Clinton won West Virginia, so I, I guess the sexism wasn't as strong at that point. Um, and 
That's a great point. I, I know. The racism controlled in 2008. Okay, this okay. time so they defaulted. The sexism in 2016. <laughs> but people who are who are just purely motivated by nothing but racism and sexism, that that's all that at that is all that's in their minds, that's all that impacts their voting behavior. Uh, people like that love uh like old Jewish men with strong New York accents. That's those, mm -hmm. those, those are their favorite people. So that's, you know, that's why, that's why Bernie Sanders came on top had absolutely nothing to do with his, you know, policies, healthcare, you know, minimum wage, any of those things, um, just sexism because this was, that was a sexism year and 2008 was a racist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, if there's one thing that white supremacists love, it's Jewish people. That's, that's what I've been led to believe. You know, that's my understanding of how this works, right? Based on those primary results, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna get you demonetized. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody, uh, nobody told the West Virginians about the space laser. Uh, <laughs> All right, Crystal. Uh, I this this is really good. This is always really good. Um, really appreciate it. You want to tell people uh, one more time where they can find the new show? Yep, go over to Substack. Um, that's a place to you can sign up for free and get the newsletter and the audio. If you pay five bucks a month, you also get the video and you get a day early too. By the way, oh, and I have a fantastic tease for this week in particular. Our guest this Friday is going to be the one and only Noam Chomsky. So. Pretty oh, excited about that. Yeah, um, okay. I'm very excited. I've gotten to interview him one time before, which was really cool and very intimidating. Kyle has never gotten to speak with him, and he's one of Kyle's, you know, biggest role models and and heroes. I don't think he would mind me saying that. So he's also super, super excited. So it should be great. All right, awesome. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thanks, Ben. Great to see you. Bye. All right, that was uh, Crystal Ball, co-host of Rising on the Hill, and also a co-host uh, now of Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, at, uh, both of those shows, uh, and in just a few minutes, I'm going to uh, be speaking to David Griscom uh, for Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Uh, but uh, before then, I just want to give you a short preview of my conversation uh, with Zero Books editor Doug Lane about uh, tech censorship uh, and uh, and free speech. So let me see. I think uh, doing this forest list, but I think we are about I understand why seeing their enemies punished could be considered anything but has to do with, and, and before I say this, I'm not almost to uh, the repressive apparatus of the state here, but like what you think that you would after the 2016 election that uh, like essentially what the gatekeepers respectability decided and you know, most big media institutions decided was that uh, where they went wrong was that they, they didn't say that Trump was, was wrong and bad enough. <laughs> if they had done that, this wouldn't have happened. And, and it is remarkable. I mean, like how, how weirdly much they've, they've overcorrected uh, for, for that in the last few years. I think they said it plenty before the election. I think they said it 
maybe even two months before the election. Do you know how many newspaper endorsements Trump got before the election in 2016? One. I don't know. It was some small town, you know, nothing to know. But, I mean, every other newspaper in the country uh, either didn't endorse at all or endorsed Hillary Clinton. Yeah, which 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 is so so, so it's, it's like there's something very weird about that that like that they they just think that like this idea, and maybe it's cynical on behalf of media organizations, but I mean certainly legions of people clearly sincerely believe this. Ever hear that he's good, and so they won't have that thought because that thought will be unexpressed. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> okay, that uh, that does take us back to uh, to the free speech issue, right? Uh, you know, because the you know certainly the motivation there is is the same as the uh, as the censorship motivation, uh, and and it's a very like yeah, I mean it's it's, it's a very uh, it's a very weird theory. I mean, like the whole thing. I mean, I mean, I've always thought like taking parlor down for like the three days or whatever that it was taken down before they found a new server was was a very weird thing to do uh like given the state of motivations uh because mm -hmm. if you think that like people kept saying oh my god you know this was being openly plotted you know on, on parlor and now i understand that it actually is much maybe more of the plotting happened on facebook but whatever like all right. I mean, just just on a like a super like from a law enforcement perspective, I would think that the ideal situation for plotting would be that it be done openly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, I recall that um, uh, my son Ben yeah. uh, uh, was involved in a protest at the University of Oregon, and uh, after it was over, a bunch of people were suspended or or were threatened with suspension. And the people who were suspended or threatened with suspension were the people who talked about what they were going to do openly on Facebook. And, then, and the administration just went to Facebook, saw what they had said, and then went after them. So it, it was a lot easier to discipline. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean what, what do you think? I mean, I, I think strange being, you know, like giving free advice to uh, the repressive apparatus yeah. of the state here. But like what you would think that you'd really want is to shut down uh, signal is to keep yeah, <laughs> shut down signal but like keep the uh you keep know, facebook keep, keep facebook keep parlor don't restrict things at all just like very quietly arrest people and you know make sure it's not publicized you know when you do you mm -hmm. know so so nobody right. stops doing it openly get rid of signal get rid of these back doors get rid of the dark web if you at all can and yeah i mean that's the 
But uh, I don't know. Again, I'm not sure why I'm giving that advice. Give it, give it advice. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But you know, which, but but that is that is a much bigger like. Uh, I mean, there there is also a whole other thing there, uh, which is on that subject, right? Of the of the repressive apparatus of the state. I mean, I, th I think we agree that you know that in some ways it's an extension of the same thing. Both because both because the big tech corporations. And the state are very chummy with each other because the big tech corporations, you know, have a, a lot of the power over the flow of information that the state would, you know, uh, you know, more than the state in many ways. Uh, but also, you know, because the same considerations should be should be applied in uh, in both cases that, you know, that if if like, do you actually want the flow of information to be restricted in this way? And then when you get even beyond the speech issues to uh, to the. Uh, the issues about like throwing people in jail, then it gets uh, it gets really disturbing, right? Like I just saw an article uh, the other day in the Nation magazine uh, saying that it's a travesty that you know that the Biden administration isn't like uh, you know that it looks like they're they're not going to throw the book at the uh, at the Capitol rioters enough, you know that they they need to be they need to be doing like they need to be applying this like felony murder statute that says if you're engaged in a felony and and then somebody you know in the course of the felony somebody else who's involved in the felony commits a murder even if you had nothing to do with it you know you could essentially be charged with murder because of the cop you know who, who was beaten to death uh and it's i i can't read this thing like is the thought entering you guys's minds at all that like this this everything that you're advocating would like, I mean, think about the, um, how many people would have been arrested for on murder charges, say, uh, after the, um, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse right. murder at the black lives matter protest. I mean, I'm not saying that Rittenhouse was a black lives matter protester, but they were involved in creating a situation where people were killed. Uh, or if you're going to be, you know, not not going on a limb like that. There were there have been um, uh, shootings of the police that happened, maybe not as a part of the protest, but nonetheless, out around the same time that Black Lives Matter protests were going on. And if you're going to say that creating a the uh, climate of hatred towards the police is a way of participating in the crime of of, of killing a police officer that did happen, then you know. It, then you would have a lot of these people who are just peacefully protesting, charged with murder. I mean, I, I may be ex being a no, little. No, I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, look. If you're going to say, like, think about the uh, the Wisconsin, you know, state house, uh, you know, protests, you know, back in in 2011, you know, which which is a a good case of storming the Capitol. Uh, right. And now, of course, you know, it's not only different in that one had a good cause and the other didn't. Uh, no, they also didn't hit anybody over the head with a fire extinguisher. Yeah, yeah, right, right. That, that didn't happen and, either. And of of right. course, that's a very important distinction. But it's a little weird to rest very much on it because because uh, like to rest very much on it in terms of what you think should happen to most people who are involved in storming the Capitol on the 6th, you have to believe that they all understood that stuff like that would be happening. Uh, and you know that that other participants were going to do things like that, and it gets a really weird standard because like if if I'm just at a, I mean I think I'm thinking back to like 2003, you know, a lot of like you know rock war protests that I went to, which would be huge protests 
and you'd get like maybe like 50 like black block guys, you know, who, who, who might be wanting to do more, you know, confrontational or illegal tactics, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, any of them beat anybody over the head with a fire, you know, with a fire extinguisher, uh, but it doesn't exactly stretch imagination to, you know, to think that you could have a situation like that where, you know, where one of them, you know, gets into like a punching match with a cop, you know, like that's, that's well, that. Look, I was at, it wasn't a punching match, but um, the Infernal Noise Brigade, I think, or at least somebody who was imitating them, uh, you know, used their drums and musical instruments to lead a, a group of black block uh, protesters right up to the police line and then smash through. Yeah. All right, that's just a small taste of the conversation uh, with uh, with Doug Wayne about uh, why you know the left should uh, should obviously be opposed to the ramping up of state repression and uh, corporate censorship, which is a sentence that when you say it out loud, uh, it seems so mind-numbingly obvious uh, that that it doesn't seem like it should need to be said. Uh, but I, I think that in you know the sort of disorientation that we've had lately. Uh, it it kind of does need to be said, right? As that article <laughs> was printed in the Nation that we we're responding to there, uh, that was suggesting the use of the kind of harshest available legal theories to uh, to lock up uh, everybody who you know who was storming the Capitol on the sixth, and is obviously disgusting. And that event was. Um, I think if you don't, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how that could be used against us or really the word could is almost wrong here, how that will be used against us. Yeah. All right. I am uh, now joined as always uh, by the, uh, the great David Griscom uh, co-host of, uh, of left reckoning uh, for outlaws and revolutionaries. Been a lot going on tonight. I haven't, uh, that's okay though. Give me, all right. There yeah, we go. man. Well, very glad. I, I think you're very right to say that there's been a lot going on tonight. So it's very great to be able to kick back a little bit and have a drink. <laughs> How are you doing, Ben? I have been doing okay. There has been uh, some, yeah, so it's, it's, been, uh, it's been a strange night. So, uh, so Forrest, who would normally be here, uh, is, uh, has been... You know, I actually finally got back in touch with him over text a few minutes ago because uh, he was uh, they. It's just weather conditions were messy with his internet, um, and then uh, you know, there's there's been some uh, you know whatever like Twitter mm -hmm. is is is, is helpful <laughs> place for you know as all as always yeah as always. Right, you know, so there are various senses which a lot's been going on, but uh, but uh, what do we uh, what do I want to talk about uh, to uh, tonight? Uh, is George Jones? Oh, yeah, I'm excited for this one, man. Um, I'm gonna do my very very best. I just don't think I'll be able to do George Jones justice. Uh, as people who have been listening to these uh, GTAA series um they know that one place i don't like to talk about a lot is texas <laughs> yeah no yeah like like we always try to politely avoid the subject of texas. 
Um, you know, but George Jones is uh, is one of the great country music artists of all time. If you're not familiar with him, like you need to spend some time because he really is somebody on a different level than a lot of the other people that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, but he's really special to me in a lot of ways because in a lot of, in a lot of ways when you think of like the great country music artist, like in the great country music, the great country music like singer is George Jones. And growing up, I used to take these insane rides from Austin, Texas to South Carolina, right? Which meant I went through Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, Tennessee, on the way up there. And George Jones was like the the soundtrack of all those trips. And even though he's a Texan, like I think more and more he's a Southern icon. Um, but more importantly for the show, he's a drunk icon. And we'll get to some of the reasons why um, going forward. But like he is, if you are familiar with George Jones, like he is probably one of the greatest country music singers of all time. Like his voice, the way he sings, he, he sings in a, he sings with such a richness and power that is not matched by many other people, right? So regardless if you like country music or not, like he is like one of the greatest singers of all time. Man, um, I'm trying to make a decision here, Ben, and uh, maybe I might need some guidance because I have some very funny George Jones stories to tell. Yeah. Um, but maybe I should dive into a little bit of his music first. What do you think? Yeah, let's go and, and save the stories for dessert. Yeah, I think that's the way to go. You know, so he's an East Texas boy. Um, so for, for people who are familiar, like East Texas is where the Southern Pines begin or end, depending on your perspective. Like, if you think of the South, of those great forests that sort of like, you know, their expanses felt throughout Tennessee and South Carolina and North Carolina, et cetera. They end in Texas and they end in East Texas. And George Jones was very much one of those kind of like country folks uh, who was on the very end of it. So he's, he's the people who was selling moonshine to everybody else. Right. Like he's country as country can be. Right. Um, and he is probably one of the most, uh, influential country singers of all time just because he has hits from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Like there is no major decade in country music that uh, George Jones was not a participant in. Uh, he was a legendary drinker and we'll get to some of the stories about that later. Um, but you know, some of his great songs is like um, man, where do you even start? Tennessee Whiskey is a phenomenal song of his. It's a really phenomenal song. I used to spend my nights in a bar room. Liquor was the only friend I've known. But you rescued me from reaching from the bottom, from the bottom, and you brought me back from being too far gone. Like you know, real stuff. The King Is Gone is another great uh, drunk person song um, because he tells a story about how he's sitting at his home. He's like getting really fucked up, and he takes the head off of uh, a Fred Flintstone um vitamin gummy jar <laughs> and fills it up with whiskey and uh ends the song with yabba dabba do the king is gone and so are you <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um you know like he has like 
every good drunk person song that you know in country music uh george jones is probably saying it that's the way to go with that and anyways 40 years of being the king white lightning is his most famous song um you know ooh, white lightning right it's like about uh moonshine like that's his very famous song but he's done music all the way through um I think the most great uh, drunk song is the one I said a second ago, Tennessee Whiskey or The King Has Gone are the, the top two songs. Another good song by him is uh, um, Who's Gonna Fill Their Shoes, uh, which is uh, a song about, you know, sort of these country artists who are making music past the, the classics, past the Willie, past the Whalen. Who's Gonna Fill Their Shoes on the Other Side of It? Very much uh, a fun song. But, I think to really tell people about George Jones, I got to tell some of these stories. Yeah. Right. Cause these are the ones that are really fun. Let's start with love and we'll move to booze. Cause for George, those are very close, but let's start with love. So Tammy Wynette is, um, if you know, George Jones and you're listening to this, you know, George Jones, you will recognize that, that name. If you don't, um, let me introduce you to her. Uh, she was an incredible country music singer from Mississippi um, who George loved very, very much, um, but was not somebody who entered into George George's life as an eligible, what's the word for a woman, bachelor. Mm-hmm. Um, she did not enter uh, George's life as a suitor, right? So George had to win her over from Don Chapel who was another country singer and uh, songwriter who was trying to sell songs to George. Um, anyways, George meets Tammy, loves her from the second he meets her, but he had to deal with the fact that she was married to this guy named Don Chapel. Don Chapel is a real son of a bitch, um, real asshole, classic fuck kind of drunk ass motherfucker from the South who's just like Teresa's wife like shit. And anyways, George is spending time with him. He's at dinner one night. And they're all at dinner and they're cooking whatever. And uh, Don decides that that's the night to fucking lay into Tammy. And uh, he's abusing her, yelling at her or whatever. And George Jones in his drunken, beautiful, drunken strength and, and heart and whatever you want to say for George flips over the table at this dinner table, like just takes the table, flips over. And he says, God damn it, Tammy, you love me and I love you. Let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so Tammy leaves Dawn at that moment and then leaves with uh, with George for better or for worse and ends up marrying him about three weeks later. Um, I tell that because I have some really good drunk stories about George Jones. So for people who aren't familiar with George, who might not be from the South, George Jones is known as like the OG drunk. The OG drunk husband, for better, for worse. And I will just say this. I know a lot of people struggle with booze, and uh, I don't want to make any statements about one thing being funnier or whatever, better, whatever. But there are some very funny stories that we could tell from George's drunkenness, and I think they're worth telling. Um, The first one uh, being a few years after he had married Tammy. Uh, He had been drinking a little bit too much. And she had hid all the keys to the cars so that he couldn't find himself any more booze. Um, But in George's own words, shining in that beautiful Tennessee sunlight, 
was the keys to our rideable John Deere lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyways, to fast forward there, George very famously rode his John Deere tractor eight miles um, from Beaumont, Texas, to the nearest liquor store <laughs> to buy some booze. And what's very funny about that story is that's not the last time that George Jones had been cut off by his partner and ended up at a drinking establishment <laughs> um, driving a John Deere tractor. About 15 years later, he ended up driving a John Deere tractor to a uh, at 1 a.m. Uh, I, it was not in the great state of Texas. I believe it was Tennessee. Um, but it was when he's living in Tennessee, he drove his John Deere tractor to a bar. And when his wife finally showed up to pick him up, he looked at the other guys around him. He said, boys, I've been telling you she's going to get me sooner or later tonight. <laughs> um, anyways, George is like, for people who are familiar, I don't want the with the wrong impression. Like he writes... This guy feels and he writes really amazing songs, but he's just like any one of us is just like a drunk to the fullest extent. And it's very beautiful <laughs> to hear these hilarious stories about him. Oh, wait, Ben, I don't want this because I know I, I don't know how familiar you're not very familiar with uh, George Jones, right? Not that much. Yeah, George is not somebody who really ex like he doesn't get outside of Dixie in a lot of ways for people. But there's a, another really great George Jones drunk story that you just have to tell. Yeah. Um, and it includes one of our personal favorites, my very much favorite, Waylon Jennings. Oh, yeah. um, and this is a story that has been told by Shooter Jennings, uh, Waylon Jennings' son, which is that uh, this is in Nashville. Um, but uh, George Jones is hanging out drinking all night long with Waylon, getting really fucked up. And he starts getting fucked up, and he starts getting a little – you know, a little wild, as George Jones was known to do uh, with Waylon. And he calls Waylon Jennings something along the lines of, like, you're just a little Conway Twitty singing bastard. <laughs> so, our boy, Waylon Jennings, does not take very kindly to that. Sure. <laughs> as you can imagine. Uh uh, ties George Jones up to a tree in his backyard. <laughs> and George Jones is sitting there tied up to a tree yelling, I'm the greatest country singer that has ever lived. I'm the greatest country singer that's ever been. And Waylon Jennings says, that might be true, but you're tied up to a goddamn tree <laughs> right now. <laughs> and... If that kind of insanity and beauty doesn't uh, give you uh, a good sense of why we love these characters, I don't know what will, right? Like, that's a that's a good country music story if there's ever been. One. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Uh, I, this, is, this is just the, the perfect way to cap these off. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad, man. All right. All right. Thank you so much, brother. See you next week. Take care. See you soon. See you. All right. Uh, was the uh, the great uh, David Griscom uh, telling us a little bit about uh, about George Jones and some amazing stories and you know a few 
I mean, I understand what he's saying is right. You know, people, you know, people do struggle a lot, you know, with, with, uh, with drinking problems. We don't want to make light of that, but also if you don't like, uh, amazing, funny, drunk stories, then, you know, either you shouldn't listen to this show or you should stop about three quarters of the way through, uh, since, uh, that, that is definitely part of the outlaws and revolutionaries ethos, uh, from, uh, from that segment. Uh, but, uh, in any case, uh, I am going uh, to probably, since we actually had Forrest again and then we lost him, I think his internet connection went uh, went back out. Uh, so I would be happy to, uh, to answer a couple of super chat questions uh, before I go. But other than that, I think uh, that we probably want to, uh, to cut it a little bit earlier than usual tonight. Uh, so... I would uh, would say that uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that's good. You know, it's probably good to cut it a little bit early tonight. You know, there was a ridiculous five hour stream uh, last night, so you know, could could make this episode not exactly short and sweet. You know, we've already gone now in forty minutes. I think this is a uh, I think this is a pretty reasonable you know length for uh, for an episode, but shorter than we have been lately, at least. Uh, but first, I want to uh, I want to just talk again about a little bit of uh, of the stuff that's uh, yeah no I'm I'm sorry Andy we're not going to do uh, we're not going to do another five hours tonight uh, that's that's really not sustainable uh, but oh oh hold on hold on hey, hey how's it going ah uh, it is pretty good how you doing I'm doing okay it's snowing really really hard here. Yeah, I, I was a little uh, so earlier on uh, when when your your internet was out, you know, earlier, and, and so I couldn't get in touch with you. And then, you know, Crystal had messaged me earlier today to talk about how bad the snow was, and and then so and then when she, you know, we there were a few minutes of us having problems connecting, which was a hundred percent my fault. I'd actually sent her the wrong link. It turned out, but. Yeah. But then, like when she wasn't coming on at first, I was like, "Oh shit, the blizzard has just knocked out everybody's internet. No forest, no crystal. This is just going to be like me talking at the uh, at the camera. I don't know how long I can stay in this, even with uh, even with clips. Uh, but uh, but I do uh, actually now that you're here, though, uh, bef- you know, before we answer some you know last minute chat questions and and we we wrap up the stream for uh, for tonight. Uh, I do want to go back to a couple of our Biden clips that we did not get a chance to uh, to get to in, right. in our time with uh, in our time with Crystal because because you you really assembled some amazing clips for this and uh, and and I want people to you know just just to get a a little bit more of a sense of the breadth of uh, of 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 who and what Joe Biden is uh, I, I want to show uh, you know a couple uh, a couple more of these. Uh, so let's uh, let's do the crime bill. Here, you so. put it on your end, or oh, I can do it on my end. Yeah, that's fine. All right, let me. Yeah, probably easier right now. Let's just do that. Here we go. So let's do. Here we go. Since 1986, Congress has passed over 230 new or expanded penalties 
for drug and criminal offenses in this United States. 230 new penalties. And these penalties range from an automatic five years in jail for any person caught with a, uh, with a, with a rock of uh, crack cocaine, a piece of crack cocaine as small as a quarter. I don't have a quarter with me, but if you visualize what one looks like, yeah, I do have a quarter. If you have a piece of crack cocaine, no bigger than this quarter that I'm holding in my hand, one quarter of one dollar, we passed a law through the leadership of Senator Thurman and myself and others, a law that says you're caught with that, you go to jail for five years. You get no probation, you get nothing other than five years in jail. Judge doesn't have a choice. Now, the fact of the matter is, we've gone from there all the way up to saying, under the leadership of Senator Thurman, and I'd like to suggest that I take some small credit for it myself as well, and others, the presiding officer, that there is now a death penalty. And we passed it a couple years ago. If you are a major drug dealer involved in the trafficking of drugs and murder results in your activities, you go to death. And a number of other severe penalties. We changed the law so that if you are arrested and you are a drug dealer, under our forfeiture statutes, you can, the government can, take everything you own, everything from your car to your house, your bank account, not merely what they confiscate in terms of the dollars from the transaction that you just got caught engaging in. They can take everything. We have laws in the last several years where we don't allow judges' discretion to sentence people, flat-time sentencing. You get caught, you go to jail. Well, all of these tools have been at the president's disposal for the last 100 weeks and more. Now, if America's crime problem is worse than it ever was, it's not because the Congress has failed to give the president the tools. It's done its part, but rather because the administration has failed to use the power given to it by the Congress over the last five years, and in particular the last 100 weeks, to bring this epidemic under control. Specifically, the, rec the administration's record of inaction includes some glaring examples. Now, if you wonder why I'm so frustrated, Mr. President, I've been dealing with this issue, crime. I have been either the sponsor or co-sponsor of every major tough piece of legislation relating to dealing with the criminal element in this country in the last 10 years, as many others have. And I hear the president tell me I'm not tough on crime. So I hope this crime bill, when it passes, the Biden-Hatch crime bill, as it becomes law, God willing, I hope that we will have ended once and for all this notion that is a hangover from the 60s, that somehow Democrats are weak on crime and Democratic presidents are weak on crime and Republicans are tough on crime. The truth is, Every major crime bill since 1976 that's come out of this Congress, every minor crime bill has had the name of the Democratic senator from the state of Delaware, Joe Biden, on that bill. 
and has had a majority vote of the Democratic members of the United States Senate on the bill. So one of the things I want to do in addition to end the crime is end the political carnage that goes on when we talk about crime. Crime is not Democrat or Republican. Making the streets safe is not a Democratic or Republican issue. This is one of those issues I hope this passage of this bill will do, will be taken out of the gridlock category and moved into an emerging consensus. And the consensus is as follows, and I will cease when I finish this statement. The consensus is, A, we must take back the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents. It doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become a, a social uh, become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask what made them do this. They must be taken off the street. That's number one. There's a consensus on that. There's a second thing that we all have agreed upon. And that is, unless we do something, Madam President, we have predators on our streets that society has, in fact, in part because of its neglect, created. I'm the guy that said rehabilitation. When it occurs, we don't understand it and notice it. And when we even when we notice it and we know it occurs, we don't know why. So you cannot make rehabilitation a condition for release. That's why in our system, there's the federal system. You serve 85 percent of your time. I remember when it was going on, when I was making these arguments in the late 70s, they used to call it Biden's same time for the same crime provision. Another thing about how uh, perspectives change over time. Bobby Rush, member of Congress, said the other day, I'm ashamed that I voted for the 94 crime bill. You ashamed of that bill? Not at all. Um, in fact, I drafted the bill, as you remember. I know that. And by the way, we talk about this mostly in terms of Black Lives Matter. Black lives really do matter. But the problem is institutional racism in America. That's the overarching problem that still exists. And we should be talking about it. And you look at it, the, the legacy of racism in housing, and jobs, and so on. So, but having said that, we take a look at the crime bill. Of the money in the crime bill, the vast majority went to reducing sentences, diverting people from going to jail for drug offenses into what I... I came up with the drug courts, mm -hmm. providing for boot camps instead of sending people to prison so you didn't relearn whatever the bad thing that, you know, got you there in the first place. Put 100,000 cops in the street. Meantime, an awful lot of people were jailed for minor drug crimes after the Exactly right. Was it. was it a mistake to support it? Yes, it was. But here's, the, here's where the mistake came. The mistake came in terms of what the states did locally. What we did federally, we said it was, and you remember, George, it was all about the same time for the same crime. What I had done as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, I did, took the 10 circuit courts of appeals, took some really brilliant lawyers working for me in judiciary. We did a study and we determined what happens if for the first, second, third offense for any crime in the, in the criminal justice system, in, in, in the uh, 
uh, at the federal level. If you're a black man, it's the first time you committed robbery. What, how long would you go to jail on average if you're a white man? How long? Black man would go to jail on average 13 years, white man two years. I go down the list of every single crime. So we set up a sentencing commission. We didn't set the time. Every single solitary maximum was reduced in there. But what happened was it became the same time for the same crime. So it said you have to serve between one and three years. It ended up becoming much lower. Black folks went to jail a lot less than they would have before, but it was, it was a mistake. And secondly, we're in a situation here where we, the federal prison system was reduced by 38,000 people under our administration. And one of these things we should be doing, there should be no, no minimum ma mandatories in the law. That's why I'm offering $20 billion to states to change their state laws to eliminate minimum mandatories and set up drug courts. No one should be going to jail because they have a drug problem. They should be going to rehabilitation, not to jail. We should fundamentally change the system, and that's what I'm going to do. But why didn't he do it four years ago? Look, Forrest, it could be my uncle, your cousin, my grandma, your sister. Your sister, my daughter, your neighbor, you know, and any any of any of them. Yeah, yeah. Any combination. Any combination it could be. Yeah. No, that, that is remarkable. Uh leading up to uh the former president asking a very good question there at the, uh, <laughs> the end. Uh but uh I think my favorite part of that whole thing, I mean, obviously in all the early clips. Biden is bragging about how draconian the crime bill is, how they're just throwing, you know, throwing people in jail and locking away, the, you know, uh, locking them up and throwing away the key. Uh, how uh, this is, you know, you have these great mandatory minimums for for everything. The judge doesn't get to uh, to let people off easy, uh, and then later on, somehow he's retconned the crime bill into actually being about more lenient sentences. Yeah. Uh, but my favorite part of that whole sequence is uh, when he is uh, like, there's a point at the end there where he's almost given this woke justification. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, no, it's like almost like the, uh, the Tarantino, like revenge porn uh, answer. He's like, well, before that, you know, white people would get so much less time and black people get all this time. But now they get the same time for the same crime. We're just putting more people away, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. No, exactly. Which, which actually kind of goes back to uh, the, the preview played earlier of a uh, conversation with, uh, with Doug Lane, uh, you know, because it's, it's the same thinking that like, Oh, all right. So there's outrageous double standards and the way to solve those double standards is uh, by you know, beefing up the state to crack down more harshly on everybody. Yeah. You know, be like if the triumphant conclusion of the civil rights act, uh, was, uh, you know, was making, you know, everybody go to the substandard schools that black people had to go to. Or the uh, voting rights act. Nobody votes. Now, uh, nobody, <laughs> look, black people can't vote. White people could vote. Now nobody votes. That's right. You've, well, made, it, you've made it more equal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you go back to, um, the actually the first thing we ever watched in the uh, Sunday night debate series was 
uh, William F. Buckley's debate about civil rights with uh, James Baldwin. And there's a, there's a point in that, you know, they're at like Oxford or something. And uh, there's a point where somebody, the you know, where he's sort of doing the conservative, like these are so deeply ingrained problems. What can you possibly do about them with the government? And somebody in the audience yells out, oh, you should let them vote, you know, in Mississippi. And, uh, and he says that he does this in this very like dry wit, William F. Buckley kind of way. Uh, but I think it's his real opinion coming out. He says, well, if I had my way, uh, most white people in Mississippi wouldn't be able to vote either. Yeah, I, I remember I remember that quote. And it's like just the elitism dripping off <laughs> William F. Buckley's lips. On, on yeah, that. Yeah, dude, don't worry. Don't worry. I hate the poor white people also. I mean, I don't know. Um, the first couple clips where he's talking about, like, Mr. President, like those are before the crime bill. Those are um, when him and Strom Thurmond were working on all the all the laws to give George H. W. Bush more power to crack down on you know nonviolent offenders and violent offenders uh, throughout the country. And he's working with segregationists. He's openly praising Th Strom Thurmond as someone who's helped him with all these bills. And he's saying, you know, why haven't you used the death penalty on more people? You know, Congress has given you all this power. So, so I guess George H. W. Bush should blame Congress for not giving him the power to execute more people during the like the moral panic of 91 and he's saying well congress has given you the power to execute anyone you want why haven't you used it why haven't you killed more <laughs> nonviolent drug offenders and put them away why haven't you killed more uh, executed more um drug kingpins like we've given you all these powers and you've chosen only to execute one person are you saying there's only one person who's uh capable of of being executed right now yeah and my, my, my son hunter knows at least five of these guys <laughs> yeah you know, uh, it's not a, uh, I, I, I don't know. I actually kind of like, uh, you know, I actually kind of enjoy Hunter as like a, as like a movie character, but. Uh, yeah, but there is like this, like this deep, deep hypocrisy of Hunter being addicted to crack of all things. And then <laughs> him and then Biden having pushed these draconian laws specifically for crack dealers. Yeah. And it's, and it's not, of course, that like that means that he shouldn't be compassionate about his son. Obviously it's good that he's compassionate to his son. You know, he'd be a, definitely a slightly worse human if he wasn't uh it's that you know it's like there's a not to be too cheesy about this but like there's there's this old arthur miller play called all my sons where the uh, the whole the whole point you know the big conclusion at the end it's about somebody who i'm, I'm gonna spoil this this uh, 60 year old stage play uh the uh that the the big conclusion at the end the guy um you know the guy in the play uh was um uh, was convicted during World War II of selling faulty equipment to the Army and uh, the Air Force, I guess, and this big thing about how, uh, like, they're trying to figure out whether his own son might have died as a result of some of the faulty equipment that he sold to the military, and then, like, he's reassured because they don't, and then somebody, like, dresses him down. It's like they should all be your sons, right? You know, that, like, yeah. but, like uh, you know, without quite going there, it's like, yeah, no, it's nice that he had compassion for, uh, for Hunter, uh, but it's a problem that he didn't have compassion for uh, the uh, numerous, uh, much less well-connected uh, people who were addicted to the same drug uh, who, or who were out of economic desperation were selling the same drug. Who, yeah. Uh, and, who, then, and then he, he says, you know, in that first clip, he's like, there are, pre there are predators on the streets and we need to put them all away. And then he's like, and rehabilitation doesn't work. That's what I figured out. Like, we don't know why people get rehabilitated. And then that last clip, he's like, we need to rehabilitate some of these people and, you know, make sure they don't do the crimes that they committed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I, think, 
I think a big part of it with Biden specifically is he took a bet on, you know, the future being far more reactionary than it was. So he 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 jumps on all these crime bills because it seems like in the 90s, the future is going to be far more reactionary. And that's how the Democrats stay in power. And at this point, you know, people have gotten a lot more, I think, empathetic towards drug use specifically. And Biden's kind of had to do a whole 360 on that or 180 on that. But like, I it's interesting because I think that that's where he put his chips in that on that uh, on that spot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. Look, I mean, I think part of it, and I mean, I'm normally not somebody who likes to put too much emphasis on this because I think, I think if this is like your entire explanation of, of something like this, you often end up missing a lot. Uh, like, I don't think that mass incarceration is uh, is just a product of racism. I think that it's. I think that like the sort of analysis you get from people like Cedric Johnson that. Uh, that actually like the, that big turn towards mass incarceration in the 1970s uh, is part of it is because, you know, of an actual crime wave, that's true, that happened. Uh, but like the big calculation that was made was uh, that you could respond to this by expanding the great society, expanding the welfare state, you know, like trying to, to really attack poverty much more directly uh, but that would be both politically and literally more expensive than just uh, ramping up like a much harsher regime of policing and incarceration. So that's kind of what the the bipartisan establishment went with instead. Like, I, I think that is like the big story as far as the history of mass incarceration. But also when it comes to what you're talking about, the drug thing, I kind of think that really is just racism, you know, because because uh, in uh, in that period, when Biden is doing all that, you know, demagoguing about the, you know, holding up the quarter and talking about how, you know, the tiniest little amount of, you know, of, of, of crack, you know, is going to under his bill is going to lead to you being locked up forever and the dealer can be executed and all this crazy shit like that. Uh, even if it was inaccurate, it was widely seen as a pathology of black people. Whereas I think with the opioid epidemic, uh, I think a lot, a lot of people are a lot more aware of uh, of a lot more white people who have these problems, and that itself leads to a lot more empathy. I mean, he very specifically talks about crack cocaine users. Like he tries right. to make sure that we know that that's um, that's the group of people he's talking about. And you know, predators are also a pretty racist code word. I mean, you saw Hillary Clinton use it at one point with super predators. So yeah. I think that he's very specifically sing signaling to a, a racial group of people. But I, I when, when, when he says, I don't care what caused it, right? You know, that he, I don't care what the causes are of crime. It doesn't matter how you got that way. If you're attacking, you know, my sister, my uncle, my brother, whatever, like he's, He's not talking to an audience who he thinks is going to like he he's talking to an audience that doesn't think that he's talking about anybody they know. I mean yeah. that's what it gets down to. Mm hmm And I know I, I think um, you know, I mean there's a bigger there's a big part of it where also, you know, they they got the um all of the black leaders, which is what Biden points out, like all the black mayors and governors and you know, uh, everybody in Congress to vote for this crime bill. Like, it, it was a like pretty much everybody voted for the crime bill at the time because right. it was during this huge moral panic about crime and this huge re reactionary backlash. And you know, Biden was definitely leading the way, kind of leading the way on 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 making it pretty much impossible for people not to vote for it. Like one thing was um, 
the the Violence Against Women Act attached to the crime bill, so that if they didn't vote for it, they could be like, oh well, obviously, you know, they don't care about women who who have been you know beat up in domestic abuse situations, right? Yeah, right. I mean, that's the which is something they did. Like they made the they tied the Violence Against Women Act to it specifically to make it harder for liberals to vote against it. Yeah, uh, which you know, I, yeah. Um, I, I just, my, my final uh, thought on it, I guess, sorry, I just, because this was something that you said kind of with him talking about, you know, you know, liberals kind of care about where people come from and like the situations that led up to it and the socioeconomic situation. And I, I think that there's just this terror, like there's this terror for people like Biden and for Bill Clinton um, in the 90s that, uh, that, you know, Democrats have to move away from these liberal notions because in their mind, it's not working. There's still a crime wave. And Democrats are just going to be punished for seeming too liberal, for seeming to care too much. So the new Democrats have to show that, you know, we're, we're Democrats, but we're tough. We're tough on crime. We're willing to execute like a mentally handicapped man <laughs> right before the show that like, you know, we're, we're that tough. Like there's a speech that he gives um, about the crime bill and some of it was in there. But at one point he says, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton believes in the death penalty. He believes in execution. And, you know, all you can think about is. Um, yeah. Like, Ray Rector. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which, which, yeah. By the way, if people read uh, Christopher Hitchens' book about the Clintons, no one left to lie to. The uh, the part about yeah, the part about Billy Ray Rector in there is 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 just savage. Uh, like like that really is, uh, you know, one of like maybe the most disgusting thing that anybody's ever done during a presidential campaign. Uh, you know, Clinton flying to Arkansas to personally oversee the uh, execution of a. Um, you know, of a mentally handicapped, you know, black man just to prove, you know, how, how tough on crime he was. Uh, but also, you know, linking up to, uh, to the other half of that calculation that we're talking about, that like a big, like a big part of why there was this turn towards mass incarceration was that it was intimately tied to the turn against further expansions of the, the welfare state and the war on poverty and all that stuff. Uh, which which does does bring us to uh, maybe yeah I think maybe the last uh, you know Biden uh, Biden clips that that we'll be doing tonight because they are just amazing. I mean, we want to have our own conservative discipline about paying for what you spend. I'm up for re-election this year, and I'm going to remind everybody what I did at home, which is going to cost me politically. I when I argued that we should freeze federal spending. I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. Somebody has to tell me in here how we're going to do this hard work without dealing with any of those sacred cows. The balanced budget amendment approach bring, bring, being brought forth by the Republican majority within the context of asking, as I understand it, for a $60 billion increase in military spending and major tax breaks for the wealthiest people in this country leads all serious economists to the conclusion that the balanced budget amendment will be a disaster for working people, for elderly people, for low-income people. It will mean, in my view, the destruction of the social security system as we know it. It will mean savage cuts in Medicare, in Medicaid, in the opportunity of young people to get grants 
and loans to go to college. It will mean major cutbacks in nutrition programs for hungry children. It will tamper with the unemployment compensation program, as we heard earlier. It will be a disaster for the vast majority of the people in this country. The economy is not booming. The standard of living of middle America and working people is in decline. Unemployment is far higher than the official statistics indicate. It seems to us to be very foolhardy to take away an option, an option of the federal government that we may wish to use, which says that when our physical and human infrastructure is in collapse, when our mass transportation system is in so much need, when our roads are falling apart, when our bridges are collapsing, that it does not make sense to take away the option that the United States Congress may wish to use, and which the Progressive Caucus believes is necessary to rebuild the physical and human infrastructure of America. I think I think Bernie is on the right side of history as far as like the long term strategy, but it, it is it, it is crazy that it feels like when the new Democrats got elected in the '90s, Biden was kind of leading the charge on a on a very different type of, of strategy. You know, after after the Great Society, after the New Deal, that turn that started the Carter administration towards like a more centrist. You know, that's that is when Biden got elected, and he was part of the like he was part of the group of people pushing Carter to the right. In, in the 70s um, on, on economic policy. And he was part of the, you know, he pushed Reagan to the right. There's a Ryan Grimm article about it, how he uh, pushed Reagan to the right on drug policy when Reagan was uninterested and um, completely uninterested in going after drug offenders at the time. And he pushed Bush to the right on, on you know, police spending and on um, kind of the same, the same thing. So, yeah. yeah, which I actually, even though I, I said that was the last one, uh, I think maybe I think maybe we should should watch just that because I think that has to be seen to be believed. Me is from Senator Joseph Biden of Delaware. He's addressing the nation from his office on Capitol Hill. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a job to do. We all have a job to do. We speak with great concern about the drug problem in America today, but we fail to appreciate or address it for what it really is, the number one threat to our national security. It affects the readiness of our army, the productivity of our workers, and the achievement of our students, and the very health and safety of our families. America is under attack, literally under attack, by an enemy who is well-financed, well-supplied, and well-armed, and fully capable of declaring total war against a nation and its people, as we've seen in Colombia. Here in America, the enemy is already ashore, and for the first time, we are fighting and losing a war on our own soil. Every president for the past two decades, Democrat and Republican alike, has declared war on drugs. And each of them has lost that war and lost it miserably. They lost because they attempted to deal with only part of the drug problem. They lost because their initiatives were pulled apart by bureaucratic squabbling among their advisors. They lost because they always did too little and they did it too late. 
That's why the Democrats and Republicans in the Congress got together last year to write the law that required the president to give us a national drug strategy. The one you heard tonight, you heard him deliver it. We don't oppose the president's plan. All we want to do is strengthen it. And then he goes on to talk about uh, how uh, he wants to strengthen uh, President George H.W. Bush's uh, plan because it uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't harsh enough. Uh, yeah, there's a there's one part of it where he talks about cops on the streets, and he's like, "Oh, he doesn't want you know all the cops on the streets that we want," which really, I mean, is the problem with like why we need to do things like defund the police right now, or why they're pushing for things like defund the police because the the, the police budgets are the one things that, that you know that can't be cut in every city. You know what I mean? Like they keep expanding and expanding and expanding, just like the military budget and the federal money towards police. Every time, every time, you know, something happens in the city, the federal money towards police gets bigger and all these, you know, programs that they let police into the army surplus programs where, you know, uh, cities can just buy military surplus gear to, you know, give to their, to their city police station. Like, you know, it it becomes kind of as, as Biden kind of called the sacred cow of, uh, of, you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Now the sacred cow is military budget, police budget. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And uh, and I, I think that it's something that, like, on the one hand, you know, we don't want to exaggerate the point, you know, because I think sometimes when people talk about, um, you know, talk about defunding the police, you know, they make it sound like uh, this would be enough. Uh, like, if we just defund the police... You know, then we can have all these other great city services and uh, and have, you know, like counselors, social workers we can call instead of the police as the first responders and, you know, better like, you know, compassionate drug programs and uh, and beef up education. And the thing is, uh, even though I, I do support like to the extent that what people mean by defund the police is that like. Your local police, you know, if your local police department has an equipment budget big enough, they could buy a tag. This yeah, year, right. You know, like clearly. Yeah, not. and there's and there's small there's small cities with with the tank budget. No, which which is insane, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also, um, but I I think we also need to be careful about this because when people talk that way, as if like all it is is a matter of shifting money around within like local budgets that like we can just you know, take enough money away from the police and then we'll have enough money for all those other great things that are just listed off. Uh, like the math doesn't really work uh, for that. That like, if you, uh, I think like, you know, I think you could do like something like take away like 75% of the budget of the NYPD, which is one of the most absurdly overfunded police departments in the world. And that still wouldn't uh, even equalize the, the, spending levels between the poorest and the richest districts within New York city. Uh, all of which is, is just to say that you can't like defund your way to local social democracy. You also do need to uh, raise, you know, taxes on rich people, yeah. uh, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's still, you know, I, I think that, uh, that the resistance to, you know, the resistance uh, to doing that, like to, uh, to you know, to you know, say, okay, can we take away the tank budget and put it to better uses? And that won't generate that much money by itself. But what the hell, it's a start, uh, is, uh, is significant. And this is also important to talk about because, like, the Biden people saying that, like, like, like uh, Crystal Ball was talking about earlier, the Georgia elections, um, 
that you can't like, oh, let's just not talk about policing at all, right? So we don't rock the boat is is significant. And uh, and it goes to one of the reasons that we're doing all this, right? Like why we're, we're playing all these clips, because I know that like some people, you know, will watch this uh, or I don't know, maybe people who are pissed off by it won't get this far in the episode. Uh, but uh, but some people, you know, will watch it. You know, since since I know there are people who who like the show who aren't necessarily as politically hardcore, but maybe they like you know some of the uh, logic and philosophy stuff. Maybe they like other aspects, and and you know they're basically progressive people, but they're not you know. But but they think you know they might think, hey, um, I don't think this is most viewers, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's some right, you know, who might say, hey. Come on, the guy's been president for like less than two weeks. Uh, you know what? Are, what are you guys doing? Why? Like, 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 give him a chance. See what happens. I had multiple people like comment that pretty much on a Facebook post, just saying that I was going into this deep dive and finding these clips and like cutting up those kind of clip montages. And I had multiple people be like, "Well, give the guy a chance." And I'm like, "Well, what are we gonna do for Monday content then?" Like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, come on. Uh, <laughs> but also, I mean, on you know, on a bigger level than that. Um, I think the reason to talk about the fact that he has decades of bragging about civil asset forfeiture and mandatory minimums of uh, talking, like talking about how very Republican presidents weren't doing enough to, uh, you know, to, to lock up poor people, you know, for drug offenses uh, that he has this long record of talking about social security and, you know, Medicare, uh, you know, cuts uh, all of that stuff. Uh, the reason is that he's one. It's just wrong to pretend that he's coming on. Uh, see, uh, see, Jason Miles, who uh, who's actually going to be a guest uh, next week, just came on the chat. I think he heard that last part. And said, "You guys must be talking about Joe Biden." <laughs> uh, the reason that it's important to bring all that stuff up uh, is that. He's not coming in as a blank slate. It's not like, oh, we just have no idea what he's going to do. Uh, and and like it's like the way people talk about this is almost like we just held a lottery, you know, to decide like everybody drew lots and then we randomly made somebody president and we just have no idea what their politics are. We have no idea yeah. what the ground is. Like this is all relevant information about the guy who just became the most powerful person in the world. Well, the other the other thing is that he's basically, you know, he spent his time at least towards the end of it, maybe not in the beginning, running. He's running on kind of destroying a lot of the policies that he kept, like that he built. You know what I mean? Like the most reactionary parts of our criminal justice law, as he said, I'm the guy. Like you know what? He made it very clear. I'm the guy who set most of that up. So he's coming in saying he's going to slowly, you know, take down like the 90s tough on crime consensus. He's going to take down things like mandatory minimums. He's going to take down, you know, like the most extravagant, I guess, parts of, you know, the, what we allow the cops to do. And that's what he ran on. So he's it's very relevant because if he's claiming that he's going to be the person who takes all of that down and he's the person who put it up in the first place, we should know exactly what he's talking about. In, no, in those that's, yeah, that's right. And um, and. The fact that he put it all up in the first place is relevant to how seriously we take it when uh, when he says that he's going to take it all down. Because, look, maybe some of that stuff, you know, like he, you know, maybe he does kind of believe it when he says that he's going to take it all down now. 
you know, it's what we were talking about with Crystal earlier, the, um, you know, just the opportunist interpretation of Biden, which I'm, true is true, I'm sure is true on at least some issues that he just doesn't really care that way much one way or the other. Like you said, he's just going to make his bet, you know, about, about where the future is going to lie. Uh, but what we know it like the fact that we know that that's the best case scenario. And by the way, I keep, um, you know, forgetting to, uh, to mention that this, but, uh, everything that we've been talking about, uh, is, uh, is in a book, uh, by our, our comrade, my, uh, my, my Jacobin, um, you know, coworker, uh, and, uh, and a, past uh repeat past guest uh bronco marketic uh uh who is uh it's called uh uh yesterday's man uh the case against joe biden you can uh, from verso books uh you can uh, you can buy it uh from uh word for red emma's which is the link that you see there uh so that's a worker-owned bookstore in baltimore that's uh, red emma's.org um but the reason that this history, everything that Bronco talks about uh, in in that book, is relevant, uh, is that the best case interpretation is that he's just a hack. That's you know, like the worst case interpretation is it really was important to him uh, to engage in mass incarceration uh, and to to cut Medicare and all the rest of these things, which would be horrifying. Uh, the best interpretation, and I'm sure there are elements of truth to both interpretations on different issues, but the best interpretation. Uh, you just, you just, froze. I think you just froze for oh. a minute there. Okay. Yeah. So I was going to say, you know, the worst case interpretation is that he is, um, is that he really was passionate about mass incarceration and budget cuts and everything else, which would be horrifying. The best interpretation is that he's just a spineless hack uh, who, who doesn't care one way or the other. Uh, and I'm sure there are elements of truth to both interpretations on different issues to different, you know, different combinations, different times. Uh, but whatever's true about that, the fact that he did all this means that at the very goddamn least, we could say he is not going to pa to be passionately pursuing undoing all of it, because at the very least, we know that he's not deeply committed to the opposite of all this stuff because he spent his career doing it. Yeah. Well, I think what I what I came to the conclusion of after watching all of those clips, after seeing you know watching some of his Senate Judiciary hearings and stuff, I, I just I think he took a bet that. The, that the future was going to be more reactionary because, you know, between the 70s and the 90s, things got incredibly reactionary towards, you know, liberal policies that have been put in place kind of to protect to protect people's rights that were accused of, of a crime or to help poor people kind of get out of that situation, to help poor black people get out of, you know, get out of poverty. And and the backlash to that was kind of what Biden rose with his, uh you know, his anti-busing talk, like, that's kind of what Biden rose into the road into, you know, into power. So as things got increasingly more reactionary, his bet was that things were going to get further more reactionary and that there was going to be a constant backlash against liberals um, at that point. So he, he kind of says it and, and he's desperate to put his name on the crime bill. He's desperate to put his name on everything so that when Democrats get pushed out of power by more reactionary Republicans, 
he's one of the ones that stays in power. So I, I, I just think he's kind of, I mean, he's kind of like a reactionary Forrest Gump. Like, <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, uh, this one's just a bit of it. Right after 1994, and you can ask the Attorney General this, because I got a call when he introduced the Patriot Act. He said, Joe, I'm introducing the act basically as you wrote it in 1994. It was defeated then, not by any liberals. It was defeated then by the folks who worried that we'd have the Minutemen would get in trouble, by the Mr. Bars of the world, who were worried about the right wing, not anything else. So just that has nothing to do with you all, but just to set the record straight, almost the same thing that got passed, the Patriot Act, was introduced by me in 1994, and it was the right wing that defeated it. You guys tried to help get it passed, including um, the wiretap changes and the rest. So Good, because we have a vote on it. I wouldn't Yeah, our uh, graphic designer, Jander World, sent me that to uh, that into the, uh, the mix. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, if nothing else... Like the fact that you know this this super cynical interpretation you're laying out is is the best case interpretation. I mean, you could say, you could try to say there's a better case that like he had these like genuine changes of heart. But what I want to know is if he did, when you know when did that happen, right? Like, you know, uh, surely if he had like some sort of road to Damascus moment where he realized that. Uh, that he has been helping to bolster a deeply unjust society for decades. Uh, that must have happened at some point after 2019 when he told a room full of donors that nothing would fundamentally change if uh, if he became president. You know, it, it must have uh, must have happened after those clips that we watched earlier with Crystal, uh, where he's making all kinds of incredibly disingenuous arguments against Medicare for all. Uh, and if he had had this this incredible change of heart, you would think that he wouldn't be lying about what was in the crime bill and, and you know, or at the very least presenting it in a way that's almost the polar opposite of the way that he was presenting it in those those clips in the 90s. Uh, and because he's not a blank slate and we don't normally treat like, you know, normally when a new president comes to office, we treat their record before becoming president as if it's pretty relevant. I mean, yeah. In late November 2016, I was marching, you know, I was, I was doing like, you know, I was participating in an anti-Trump march in, uh, in New Jersey. Uh, nobody, nobody's going to wait to see and, you know, give him a chance, nor should they have. Uh, and and to, to my mind, like, look, if, if Biden decides that he's going to have that road to Damascus moment now, uh, which, and by the way, if he was going to, I think Crystal had some some really useful concrete suggestions earlier for how he could show it, right? Like, like, like he could uh, he could take up Bernie Sanders' proposal to um, temporarily give everybody in the country uh, eligibility for Medicare uh, as as a pandemic emergency measure, uh, and you know that wouldn't even commit him to reversing himself on the Medicare for all stuff. Although good luck taking it away once people are used to having it. Uh, like, like, but you know, he could champion that. And, you know, yeah, yeah, Joe Manchin, but like we were saying earlier, you know, he could, you know, I mean, he could fly down to uh to West Virginia and, you know, like clasp the hand of some primary challenger and say, Hey, Joe Manchin is the one person of the country who's standing in between you guys and having healthcare. Hey man, I just learned something from from the last few months. People really don't like their private insurance. Who would have known? Come on, man. Let's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He could. He won't. 
right? But he could. And I guess to my mind, the important reason to point that out is not because I believe that, uh, that, you know, the left certainly, you know, could do that much to, um, to pressure him, right? Like there, there might be individual votes, uh, where, where leftists in Congress like can, you know, like strategically, you know, like say, you know, play hardball, you know, and say they're not going to vote for this or that, you know, if it doesn't include, you know, such and such amendment or whatever, that might be effective in certain cases. But like, generally speaking, it's not that I think that there's, there's much that the left could do to, uh, to pressure him. I think that what we're going to get is pretty much what we're going to get. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the only thing that you can really do to pressure Joe Biden, and he said it within his crime bill speech, is you change the political consensus completely, which is not going to happen in four years. But if you change the political consensus to the point where there's literal political backlash for supporting, um, you know what I mean, private insurance, then I think Joe Biden would change his mind instantaneously. But since that's not the case and, you know, incumbents don't get punished for um, not supporting Medicare for all. And we're not on the point where, you know, a lot of leftists even vote that way. They vote for the lesser of two evils. I, I don't think that there's a way to change his mind. And I definitely don't think there's a way to change his mind within four years. But um, no, but. Even yeah. though you can't, even though you're most like, you know, I no, I don't think you're going to change his mind. I think he is pretty much going to be where he's going to be, right? I mean, I said this during the election uh, that, you know, I thought that it made sense, um, you know, if you're in a swing state to hold your nose and do what you got to do, uh, because, um, you know, because I think there are good reasons to prefer fighting with terrible corporate centrist Democrats rather than uh, right wing Republicans uh, that, you know, there are things, uh, you know, in terms of court appointments, in terms of the National Labor Relations Board, in terms of a lot of things that that do make a, a, a difference there, both in terms of hard reduction strategically. But I also said, uh, I don't particularly think that you're going to be able to, to change him. I think, I think Biden is, is, is what you're going to get. Uh, but the reason to point this stuff out is not because, you know, there we're going to, you know, the American left is going to get it together so much that we're going to like have some super effective, super fast pressure campaign. Uh, the reason to point all this stuff out is because we need to be, I think every day we need to be pointing out, Hey, Here's what Biden could be doing if he wanted to. Here's the gap between what he could be doing and what he is doing. Uh, you know, even with Joe Manchin, even with whatever, here's the thing he could do. Here's the thing he could do. And the reason to point that out uh, is precisely because Biden probably can't be changed. And so what we ultimately need to do is not like somehow convince centrists to become good social Democrats. What we need to do is to just beat them at a whole bunch of elections, which is obviously a very big task. It's a very steep, you know, uphill battle. Uh, but I think that's the only way to do it. Right. So like every, and so anytime we can point out, Hey, here's a shitty, awful thing that centrists are doing to screw us over. That makes it a little bit easier to launch this primary campaigns. Yeah. And to convince people that, you know, some of these things really are uh, possible in the right political conditions. But I think there's a really telling moment in, in the crime bill um, montage where um, specifically, I mean, Biden's saying, I don't want to end I, what like the big part of what I want to do with this bill is to end the political consequences for coming out being tough on crime. So he's leading the way for somebody like Bill Clinton, because it, the big thing in his mind is 
I don't I don't want political backlash from liberals for taking these positions. So if everybody, if every centrist Democrat has these same like tough on crime positions and, and we acknowledge that there's a political consensus, then the backlash that I get from the left isn't going to be a real thing. So I think he really does think in these terms, um, you know, with consensus and with, you know, what the establishment, like what the establishment position is doing. And he's constantly triangulating. And in that sense, his 20 years in power is really queuing up Bill Clinton's existence more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and it really is remarkable if you go back and look uh, at like, obviously the, you know, the so-called new Democrats, which, you know, Biden was very much a part of, uh, you know, the you know, Clintons were obviously at the center of that group. Um you know, and, and that that neoliberal turn in the Democratic Party that started with you know with Carter and kind of culminated with Bill Clinton, and you know Barack Obama most in most ways represented a continuation of it. But you know the Clinton era was really the high water mark. You know that's that's where they uh, that's when they did the crime bill. That's that's when they uh, uh, that's uh, that's when uh, when they did um, you know welfare reform. And as much as the New Democrats were like really uh, cynical uh, political operators, and and obviously somebody like Bill Clinton, you know, was, you know, within those confines. I mean, it's it's certainly morally despicable, uh, you know, and not politically aligned with what we want. But you know, we're very smart political operators in a lot of ways. Uh, there's also this element of just incredible delusion that, like, I think the Clintonites really believed in the '90s. That if they did welfare reform in the crime bill, that would just take away crime and welfare as issues that Republicans could use against them forever. Yeah. And and just, you know, taking all these issues off the table that were seen as more liberal, you know, um, I, I mean I, I think that the Rick Perlstein books are really are a really interesting like study into that. Like the 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 reactionary backlashes that occurred at that time period, pretty often to different policies that had been kind of democratic consensus for a long time. So I, I, I think that, you know, I think that these are really, I guess, consensus operators. And it's kind of been the most toxic part of our um, part of our politics is that as they build these different, you know, as they build like what they consider a consensus, it's always against poor people. Like it's always a backlash against poor people, either getting too much from the welfare state or, you know, poor black people and, and you know, putting away people for way too long over drug crimes because there were some people in the news that then were, you know, like, like there definitely was a crime wave, but then it's it's a backlash against everybody that they now consider a criminal and everybody, you know, like it's these different things that they want to show. I mean, it happened with the new Democrat or the new new labor in uh, in the UK, too, like these these consensus operating, you know, more right wing, like center left, what was considered a center left party operators. And it, and it all happened around the same time. Um, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, all right, so I want to. Uh, so there's a super chat question. Uh, Yoda seventy one hundred four. I uh, think there's a better chance of collapse than GOP. You're taking over the Dems. Think third party is viable in our system. Long term strategic thoughts. Uh, I definitely, yeah, I definitely have some thoughts about that. But you want to uh, take first crack at it? I mean, I just think you know a third party that emerges is probably going to end up just pushed back into the two party system. You know what I mean? Like. I, I think that there is somewhat, it, it's hard. It's hard to really make that assessment because it seemed like for a while there, like AOC and Bernie and all, were, like it was all kind of signs that 
maybe eventually we could take over the Democratic Party. But, you know, with, with Joe Biden getting elected and, and centrist kind of pushing back into that, it doesn't really seem like it's a it's a possible thing now. So I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that there's a chance to, at a, at a local and state level, build a third party that really works in terms of like like the populist movement. And, and that can have real strategic victories and that can really push everybody else left because, you know, at that point, there's big there's big victories within state and local governments. And, it, and there is shown that that pressures like existing parties to have to triangulate to that. So I think that's the first step is to build maybe a third party in some of these state and local um, elections that that really can have some success. Because at a national level, I don't think you can just really just pop up and say, you know, like we're a third party and we're here to to take over the the independence of both parties. I'd love if that worked, but it, like there's no historical, you know, terms that that seems to have worked in. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, yeah, I, I definitely agree with the last part of what you said. Uh, I, I think that I think that the idea that you're going to build especially on the national level although frankly even on the state level uh i'm I'm not very optimistic uh i mean i think that like in places like new york where you have fusion voting so you can have like the work you know working families party stuff like that obviously that's different uh but as far as like like real third parties on um even on the state level i mean once you get down to the like local level cities a lot of those elections are nonpartisan anyway, so that that's that's just a different thing. Uh, and you know, if there's anywhere that you can do a ballot line third party, maybe it'd be for partisan local elections. Uh, but it's it's very yeah. I, I mean, obviously, the American electoral system is really really good at stopping people from uh, creating electorally viable uh, third parties. You know, you you have to. Um, Every once in a while, something will happen on the state level. Uh, you know, people will be elected as third-party candidates or independents, like Jesse Ventura or Bernie Sanders. Uh, although, like the Bernie, the, the Bernie example is interesting, right? Because Ventura wasn't in for very long at all, uh, and in Bernie's case, obviously, he managed to stick that out for the long haul. But that was by essentially becoming a quasi-democrat that he caucused with the Democrats in the Senate. And then they just stopped, like, after the first couple times, like, they just stopped running candidates against him, you know, like, essentially, even though he wasn't elected on the Democratic Party ballot line, he was essentially elected uh, as a as a Democrat, you know, for all practical purposes. And that can go the other way, too, because, you know, the only other independent in the Senate is Angus King from Maine, and he's kind of kept his position in power by acting as a wedge between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and just being a Democrat that occasionally, like... Like someone that votes for the Democrats most of the time, but if he thinks the Democrats have gone too far left voting with the Republicans. And that's how he's kind of kept his wedge in power. So, you know, just because somebody is independent doesn't mean that. Yeah, yeah, that they're, they're, that they're actually independent, right? You know, yeah. there, there are lots of, uh, there's independent and there's independent. So I guess just to wrap up the third party question, um, you know, yeah, I think it's very hard for even people who've won, you know, like, yeah, uh, state level positions, or you know, or or they've won in a state, uh, they've won a you know a senate seat, you know, for a state. Uh, that it's very hard for them to stay meaningfully independent of the two party system, even when lightning strikes like that. Uh, and so, I guess all of which is not necessarily to say that I think it's impossible that we could ever have a viable new party. 
I just think that you have to, when you're thinking about this stuff, uh, I mean, this this sounds like a really basic thing to say, I know, but like you just have to think about American history, not the history of other countries. Uh, big, and, and that's not because there's anything like super special about America. That's just because our electoral system is very different from most of the other countries where people can point to uh, the emergence of uh, viable third parties. Uh, and especially, you know, you were talking about the populace earlier, but I mean, that was like the 1890s and it was, you know, and it was reabsorbed into the Democratic Party. And the system has changed a lot since the 1890s. A lot of the elements were in place, but like a lot of the laws that make it really hard uh, to have third parties, you know, have, have shifted since then. So all of which is just to say, I think that it's possible that we could get a new major party in the American system, but I don't think it would happen the way that third party advocates usually think it would happen. There will, you know, the, what, you know, it's, I don't think it could happen like, Oh, you know, Jill Stein getting, you know, 1% of the vote turns into, I don't know. I mean, Howie Hawkins actually got like way less than Jill Stein, but Howie Hawkins getting 2% of the vote or whatever turns into, turns into, turns into, and then in like 50 years, people are actually winning elections. I don't think, I don't think it could happen that way. I think you have to look at the only time that there actually has been a new major party uh, that has been, you know, has uh, like has replaced one of the existing parties within the American system, which was Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party in the 19th century. It was, a, a, you know, a, as an anti-slavery third party that then became one of the two major parties. Uh, and that didn't happen through some fringe candidate getting a couple percent of the vote and that somehow snowballing into something later. That happened because one of the existing parties basically ruptured apart and their end like, and the anti-slavery wing of the Whigs became the Republicans. And so if we got a new major party in the U.S., I think it would be like that, all of which is just to say that I think the only path forward is building up, like, the Bernie crap kind of wing of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, like, like uh, uh, Dustin Guestella uh, and Jared Abbott, I remember had, had an article in Jackman about this, that, you know, they say, look, taking over the Democratic Party versus having a new party – aren't actually two different strategies. Those are just two different possible outcomes of the same strategy, which yeah. is you could build up a strong enough democratic socialist kind of wing uh, within the you know democratic party that either it would be able to take over or as it tried to, the democratic party would just break apart and it would become a new major party. So that would be my take on that. I think there's also voter failure that's come with this, which is that we don't punish incumbents that are unpopular. Like just historic, like there just isn't evidence that we punish incumbents, and and I think voters have to realize that you know we can punish incumbents, um, and like you know what I mean, and like start accepting primary challengers, uh, for any of this to even work. Yeah, I mean, it's a yeah. I think that they right. I you know I think you have to do it at this stage through primaries because otherwise it's a collective action problem. It's like um, uh, it's. Uh, it's like that scene in Jerry Maguire, right? You know, when he gets up, who's with me, right? Yeah. Who's going to leave with me? And nobody leaves mm-hmm. that, uh, that you, like, if you're trying to do the third party thing within a general election right now, it's, it ends up kind of being like that, right? Everybody in DSA could get up for the who's with me and it would be a tiny, tiny little sliver of the vote. It would, it would just collapse again. Uh, so 
I think that, again, you need to have like really build up these Bernie crack kinds of forces. I think you'd really need to do, um, you'd really need uh, to, to rebuild the labor movement, you know, so you'd have those like union, like, like uh, shock troops, you know, for, for a revitalized left. And I know all this is much easier to say than to do, but I, I, I'm just saying like, you can't just will a new party into existence. Those are the conditions that would actually have to exist to make that happen. Uh, Observer uh, says in Super Chat, Catalyst article, uh, Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration, talks about the pressure uh, post-war, uh, uh, so I guess that's post-Vietnam War, crime wave created for draconian pro- uh, crackdowns. Even people like Bertie were forced to bow to that pressure. Yeah, right. Like, I, that's, I, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. You know, that, um, like, yeah, even Bernie, you know, with the, uh, with, you know, with the crime bill in the nineties, uh, he, you know, he gave some speeches like denouncing the parts of it about, you know, mass incarceration, but then he ended up voting for it, uh, because, you know, because it is attached to the violence against women act and he, he wasn't willing to take the hit, you know, politically for voting against that. Uh, and, you know, and I mean, whatever, I mean, that's certainly a black mark on his record, but it's also, the f- I think it also says something about how intense that was at this point that like even somebody like him who is about as good as you know as as politicians with real power get on these issues you know still caved under those circumstances mm-hmm. and you know it was really I mean politically you know uh, attaching it to the violence against women act was really genius because it becomes kind of so not only does it become impossible not to vote for it because, you know, there is this like weird consensus created, but, you know, for your liberal bona fides, I guess, it becomes impossible not to vote for the Violence Against Women Act because all of a sudden, not only are you against, you know, criminals being put away, which, you know, incenses the right, but like you, they can push it later so that you're against women being protected, which, you know, which would be a backlash from the left. Um, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. All right. Um, so look, this is, uh, you know, I, I said an hour ago, we cut it early tonight. Uh, and then, uh, and then, uh, and then we got caught up in, uh, in all of, uh, in all of this stuff. Uh, so, uh, if, if people want to ask another question, we can maybe squeeze in one more question, but, uh, but otherwise, uh, let's, um, you know, otherwise, uh, let's, uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, you know, we, you know, of course, uh, outlaws and revolutionaries is uh, is normally supposed to be uh, about the uh, the end of it. Uh, so uh, just to uh, just to have a nice note to like that to uh, to end the show on. Uh, we're doing uh, Wolf of Wall Street on uh, on Wednesday. Have you actually? Yeah, that should be really fun. <laughs> that should be that should be a really fun time doing Wolf of Wall Street after the whole GameStop thing. Yeah, you uh, you watched it the other night, right? Yeah, but I'm probably gonna watch scenes from it again before that um i also downloaded the audiobook of it i guess it's only four hours but i haven't delved into that yet it's been a great <laughs> couple of days nice all right uh yeah no i saw it i haven't seen it again i'm probably gonna see it tomorrow night i, I saw it in the theater you know when it when it first came out uh you know and obviously you know that was a lot of fun to watch uh under uh, uh under any circumstances uh, you know, that, uh, Ooh, yeah. Arik asks, uh, what's better casino or Wolf of wall street? Uh, that's, I, I think I'd still say casino, but Wolf of wall street is, uh, is a very good movie. Yeah. Um, 
So, uh, so yeah, no, unfortunately, uh, somebody asked if we we're watching it live on the stream. Unfortunately, uh, we can't do that. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, you, the, the YouTube hammer would come down on us pretty hard, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but if you watch it yourself, uh, in between now and Wednesday, uh, you know, we'll, uh, you know, we'll be talking about it. Uh, we'll be talking about it on Wednesday. And like I said, you know, it's always a fun movie to watch. And uh, a particularly timely one uh, after the uh, after the whole uh, ga- you know after the whole GameStop thing. Um, so uh, lots to talk about there. That's going to be me, Forrest, uh, Daniel Bessner, um, uh, Ryan Lake, uh, and uh, Micah Utrecht. Uh, so that should uh, that should be a lot of fun. Uh, on Sunday, uh, we are continuing the Sunday night uh, debate breakdown live streams uh, by watching uh, Roger Scruton uh, versus uh, Terry Eagleton. Uh, and on Monday, uh, I'm going to be debating Adam Kokish uh, live on air, and uh, and then I'm going to be talk chatting with Jason Miles from the This Is Revolution podcast. Uh, okay. Uh, quick super chat question before we go. Charles Raintree asks, is Griscom done Loretta Lynn? Uh, if not, would you ask him to? Uh, no on one, yes on two. I think that would be fun. Uh, there's a uh, there's a uh, podcast I like about the history of country music uh, uh, called uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones, uh, which is uh, by uh, actually put out by David Allen Coe's son. And I remember there being a good Loretta Lynn episode there. So uh, lots to uh, lots to talk about. So it's a good idea. But uh, meanwhile, uh, <laughs> let's uh, let us uh, cut it there for tonight because it has been about three hours and uh, coming out of that five hour live stream uh, last night. Uh, so I will uh, see everybody uh, back here on Wednesday. Left is. As-